Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Hey kids, comics! And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. I went to the ship. That's the quickest intro I've ever done, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. Do you have anything to say? I don't. I hope you're going to get this episode edited in time. Oh, I should do. Because last week's episode, if last week's episode didn't go up on time, it's Michael's fault. Don't worry, I've got, I have no distractions now. You've got to do it this weekend, I'll listen to it on Monday at the gym. Alright, okay, I'll do it this weekend. <laughs> if I'm not sleeping. Don't be doing that. It's been a busy week, I need to sleep. Why, what have you been doing this week that has been so busy? I have been working on my final art exhibition at college. Very final, last minute. Final. Very, very last minute. It's not like you to be last minute, he says, uh, pointing out that the episode that we're currently recording, Michael actually finished doing the notes for four minutes ago. Because I was doing work for college. Oh, right, so priorities. Exactly, yeah. So your college took a higher priority than this thing that you don't get paid for. Well, you see, if I don't write the notes for the show, I don't lose my place at uni. That's a good point. Yeah. And it's well put. And I will take that on board <laughs> whilst I weigh up the pros and cons of which one I think you should be working on. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we have nothing of comic book importance to report, do we? Other than, a couple of weeks ago, Ali Robertson sent us a great email and he said he was going to send us a record that was partially inspired by our show. Now I'm very big on this creative endeavour thing and you yeah. know, paying forward. I'm a big fan of paying forward. So I like the fact that we have inspired an album of music. That we got for free. That we got for free. So I will be playing this album of music at mm-hmm. some point in the week when I have an hour's car journey today. Okay. And uh, are you going to listen as well? I shall and we shall and we shall report back we shall. to Ali that uh, we thank you very much that Ali Robertson and his conversations thought enough of us to make an album that was partially inspired by us and give us a free copy. And we got the second out of 50. We did. We got number two of 50 pressings. Yeah. Rarity. Yeah. When he makes it big. When he's on whatever passes for Top of the Pops at the minute. Because they don't do Top of the Pops anymore, do they? Apart from at Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Where we openly mock it. Oh, yeah. Because it's part of our Christmas tradition. So thank you, Ali. We do appreciate that. And uh, Ali Robertson and his conversation can be found at... Oh, he's not put a web address or anything in here. Oh, well. I can't plug it then, can I? <laughs> uh, look him up. I'm sure he's Googling. I'm sure he'll be on Google. Can't advertise if you don't advertise. That's a shame. Did he not give us his email in his email? He probably did, but email. I would have to scroll back through all the emails because I only asterisk the ones that Are we're going to cover on? this yeah. week. Yeah, speaking of which, we will have a look at Christopher Franklin's email for this week, which is entitled Supergirls wanna have fun. Oh, Supergirls. Girls just wanna have. That's all they really want. And 
super diamonds are a super girl's best friend. Absolutely. Or a super girl's super best friend forever. Indeed. Codes. When the crisis on Earth is done, oh, Supergirls just want to have fun. Uh-uh. I think after the crisis, what they really want is to live. Ah, but the crisis didn't happen anymore. But it did happen. In a multiversity somewhere. Yeah. It did happen, it didn't happen, it may have happened, it didn't happen, it could have happened. I wish I could do that with my life. Two comics this year do say that it happened. Do they? Yeah. Alright. Okay. Which two? Uh, Justice League issue 40, or 41. Right. And the Multiversity Guidebook. Alright, fair enough. Yeah. If you wanted it to happen, in your head canon, yeah. it happened. If you go to your bookshelf and you pick up Crisis on Infinite Earths <laughs> and it's... Did it not, happen? It's not just a book of white pages, then it happened. In your head. Happened in my head. I think Crisis is great. Anyway, shall we return to Chris's email? Okay. Alright. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Christopher. Ed Benes. He is a great artist, but in his later works, he tends to go out of his way to put his camera as low as possible. Or as high, if he's after cleavage. He draws these poses very well, but just look at his Birds of Prey run. Gorgeous, but maybe belies the title Strong Female Theme, especially under his collaborator, Gail Simone. I've always been interested in this Supergirl arc, but for some reason never bought it. I did collect the Supergirl series for the first year or so and enjoyed it, but then David went further into the Earth Angel stuff and it just seemed an odd fit for a Supergirl title. It was kind of the Vertigo title of the Superman set at the time. But although this story sounds like a lot of fun, although I think I can explain your problems with Crisis Elements with one word. Hypertime. Now, Dandy Dio's ears probably just perked up as you said that, because Hypertime is verboten at DC. Hypertime was a concept concocted by Mark Wade and Michael's favourite, Grant Morrison, in the mid-1990s. It was a clever way of the Silver Age aficionados getting around the lack of the DC multiverse. Essentially, every DC story, Earth, continuity, you name it, existed in Hypertime. Wade introduced the concept in the Kingdom Come half-hearted sequel, The Kingdom, fifth week event, and then used it here and there in The Flash. Carl Kiesel had Connell explore the concept in Superboy. I'm not sure Morrison ever did much with it, apart from the multiversa, mm. which I presume is kind of a big Hypertime yeah. thing, but writ large. That's my assumption. When Didio took over, I believe he flatly stated Hypertime was out. Just like this Supergirl. <sighs> What, what is it with Didio that he came in and just got rid of everything and just made a blanket statement you know all that stuff you liked in the 90s none of that exists anymore yeah. at the whims of me because I am in charge now Hypertime gone Linda Danvers Supergirl never happened I want to know what they did to him Peter David's comics he's out of here yeah alright fair enough now I really want to find this trade or these back issues and give them a read Superman marrying Supergirl sounds like the kinky stuff Alan Moore planned for his aborted Twilight project at DC I live in Kentucky and we can't even marry first cousins here second and you're golden (laughs) lives in Kentucky I wonder if he's far away from Harlan because as we all know you don't get out of Harlan alive unless you're Raylan Givens yeah as for the Supergirl TV series, man, that extended trailer or six-minute cut of the pilot looks great. It's amazing to think the DC TV guys with their limited TV budget get what Grant Snyder and David Goyer... Grant Snyder? Should that be Zack? Yeah. I think that should be Zack Snyder and David Goyer and their mega millions just can't. This looks fun and joyous, which should go hand-in-hand hand with the letter S. Great episode, as always. Christopher, host of Supermates with his wife Cindy. Thank you very much, Chris. Especially the Hypertime stuff. Mm. I was aware of Hypertime. I wasn't. But then Dan DiDio said it didn't exist, so yeah. I've forgotten about it. Mm. That's the way it works, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, James Lewis emailed in. Hello, James. How many Supergirls does it take to stop a crisis? Is this like how many Supergirls does it take to change a light bulb? Yeah. <laughs> if it's Ed Benes, it doesn't matter. But the camera will be right down here as she reaches up for it. Can you tell how many Supergirls it takes if she's travelling really, really fast? That's true. And if it's Supergirl After Crisis on Infinite Earth number 8, it doesn't take any, because she's deed. Yeah. So, tough. Your light bulb just remains broken. It's very sad. That light bulb's as dead as Supergirl? It is. <laughs> it's as dead as... Oh, forget it. Just get a Matrix bulb. Yeah. Yeah. Greetings, illustrious Leyland. During your coverage of Supergirl, you brought up a point that has long been on my mind. The physiology of Superman. Now, the point I'm going to make can only be described as bitchy nitpicking. Oh, well, you've come to the right place. (laughs) So how does exactly does Superman's Kryptonian physiology work? wondered James. Or more specifically, why is he so muscular? I mean, obviously, it's because the artists want to make him look powerful and heroic, but in the context of the DCU, it doesn't quite add up. How can Superman build up so much muscle? Lifting tractors, maybe, but I doubt it, because he could do that without breaking a sweat. Earth's yellow sun? No, because that just supercharges his cells, not create more of them. Supermetabolism? Not quite. He would just be able to break food down into energy faster and subsequently have to eat more. His Kryptonian biology? Possibly. But Earth's yellow sun would change his biology. So even if it were his natural genetics, the sun would change the outcome of his appearance. The fact that there has never been a direct canonical reason for his bodybuilder frame bugs me. Which, in turn, is why I've always been more partial to a strongman physique, where he has a little bit more heft to him. Or even a leaner, more agile-looking Superman works for me. I just thought I'd write in to bring up a question that has always kind of bugged me. Anyway, excellent comic coverage, as always. I never really cared about Supergirl, but your evaluation of this story has actually made me interested in picking it up and giving it a try. Thanks for all your effort and time. Best wishes for the future. Your dedicated listener, James Lewis, from Texas. By the way, most people who live in Texas don't have a southern drawl, probably because the majority of the population is Hispanic. Oh, right. Well, all right, all right. All right, all right. Well, if you're in Texas, James, we hope everything's going all right for you, despite the uh, the current events that have happened. But, um, yeah, I think somebody's discussed Superman's philology, but physiology, whatever that word is, yeah, yeah. before. But if you actually go back, I, I am a big fan of, of Joe Schuster's rather squat yeah. Superman. Overweight, underweight man. Yeah, essentially. And George Reeves. Yeah. Essentially. The way I, I always thought about it was, like, in Kingdom Come, hmm. he's just, like, a normal... He's, 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 propor- he's a normal, well-built guy. Yeah, but his proportions are different to other humans. So he still has to push himself to do stronger things. Mm, but he's not built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, it's like what they did in Invincible. Invincible is the strongest person on Earth because he's a superhero. Mm. But when he had to fight the other Viltrumites, he was weak because he didn't push himself mm. to his his limits. And he's quite skinny. Yeah. Right. All right. Yeah, all that works for me. I just I just have a soft spot for the George Reeves. Uh, Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, Superman, rather yeah. than the muscular guy. Although Kurt Swan didn't try a big muscular guy, really, did he? Mm. And if you think about Wayne Bro- Boring, Drew somebody who looked quite squat and porky. <laughs> so, you know, I suppose it depends which one you broke you broke up with, you uh, you grew up with. Neil Stanifer, Supergirl of Southern Belle. That should be interesting, shouldn't it? Hello, Leyland. Hello, Neil. Many thanks for your coverage of the Peter David Ed Benner six-issue Supergirl arc. Many happy returns. I've long considered picking up this run, but have been putting it off. Did nobody read this? Is there anybody else that read it? Everyone has emailed it and said, well, I kind of thought I may want to read it. Did, did but... he get distracted? 
Yeah. A, a distraction. <laughs> it did It did get a trade, just yeah. that last story arc, and the first nine issues. The rest of it's never been. Never been traded, and is not available digitally ah. on Comixology. So. Coinkydink. I wonder if all that will change come November, when the series comes out. Ah, yeah. Did he or smells them big books? Yeah. Fat stacks, yo. Fat stacks, yo. I couldn't help but notice, as I listened, however, continued Neil, that the two of you seemed a bit puzzled by some of the details of the story. That's not unusual for us. <laughs> I'll hazard a guess that it could be because you're not Americans living in the American South, or at least within constant earshot of the many characterizations of the South by folks who've never been there. Perhaps I can attempt to put these pieces together in a way that will prove helpful. Be advised that what follows is entirely a product of ad hoc rectal extraction, obfuscation and outright fabulation, but it's the best I can do. You recall, I trust, that the story takes place in Leesburg. Unless DC has intentionally invented a new Leesburg elsewhere, Leesburg is located in Loudoun County, Virginia, some short distance west-northwest of Washington, DC. Paradoxically, just as one may travel south from Detroit and arrive, however briefly, in Canada, one must also travel north of our nation's capital to arrive in the south. Blame cartographers if you must. I always do. Furthermore, whilst Leesburg is not named after Confederate General Robert E. Lee of Dukes of Hazard fame, <laughs> it certainly sounds as though it should have been. As my imaginary Meemaw might have said, had I been raised in the South, Leesburg sounds Dixie as all get out. In fact, if you wanted a more southern-sounding place name, you might have to reach for Lynchburg, or even, dare I say it, Darky Springs, Tennessee. <laughs> Oh dear me. Sure, modern Leesburg is a comfortably upscaled bedroom community which feels about as much a part of Dixie as does Worcester, Massachusetts. But to anyone who brings up this point, I will simply point to the Confederate-themed minor villain in the arc and shout, Look! A Reb! It's the South! Run! Fun historical fact. During the American Civil War, Leesburg was the site of the Battle of Ball's Bluff, a conflict which ended in a serious arse-whooping of Union troops by Confederates. I'm not sure this signifies anything, but I wanted to type Battle of Ball's Bluff <laughs> twice. <laughs> I have never heard of the Battle of Ball's Bluff, but now I want it to be a film. With Luke and Bauduke in it. Oh, it doesn't have to be historically accurate. What would you call it? Balls. The of Dukes steel. The Dukes of Ball the Dukes of Steel. Okay. The Dukes have balls of steel. The, the Battle of Dukes Bluff. The Dukes Balls. Yes. Either way. So now we've established that Leesburg is in Dixit, onto the six hamburgers and the frequent cardiac problems you noted in the story. Whilst the state of Virginia is behind the national curve when it comes to the rising obesity rates, coming on at about 27% against the national average of 29%, again we can simply point to the name of the city and its connection with the South, as well as the disproportionate obesity rates in the rest of the South. Tennessee weighs in at about 34% obesity rate. And from there we can employ internet logic to postulate that people in Leesburg eat a whole lot of fatty foods and are thus more prone to heart disease than elsewhere. If my studies of literary theory in university taught me nothing else, at least I learned not to let bothersome facts get in the way of a good narrative. <laughs> I could probably say something here about the stereotypical age of consent in the South and somehow connect that with the high school locker room scene, but unfortunately consent laws in the South are quite more stringent than in the North and West of the US, so there's no help to be found there. I also don't want to be ambushed and murdered by any of your southern listeners. <laughs> Good luck, Neil. So what have we learned? To sum up, not much really. But I hope I've done my part to illuminate the connections between a minor villain, some hamburgers, a couple of cardiac failures, and the name of Supergirl's Town. If I can ever be of service again, please don't hesitate to call upon me. 
And let us never forget the Battle of Balls Bluff. Until next time, I remain, as ever, your indefatigable grammar merchant, Neil Stanifer. <laughs> I quite enjoyed that, Neil, even though I have got no idea what we've learned from it all. There's no G.I. Joe moment at the end of this, is there? No, no. We turn to the camera and say, so what have we learned today? Although, I have learned that there was a Battle of Balls Bluff, <laughs> which amuses me. Knowing is half the battle. battle of Balls Bluff. <laughs> oh! Quality gag. we got time for another one. It's a new emailer! Michael Ridge has emailed in. Once again, subscribing to the theory that to be involved in or email the show, you have to have the name Michael. Okay. I like that. Michael Ridge just emails about the Rocketeer. Greetings, Andrew and Michael. Hello, Michael. There's a lot of Michaels involved in this. <laughs> I enjoyed your review of the Rocketeer so much that I went to my local comic book store and picked up a copy of the IDW reprint of two original stories. I don't think this edition has all the Betty pinups that your edition has, but there were several gorgeous full-page pictures of Betty. Her looks identical to my memory of the Betty Page comics that Dave Stevens did for Dark Horse. I picked up those whenever I found them, back when I was in college. I especially like the Jungle Adventures, because she never wore more than a leopard bikini. It's a good reason to buy stuff, mm-hmm. I think. I was surprised you didn't bring up the fact that Doc Savage was the inventor of the Rocket Pack. You know why that is, Michael? That went right over our heads. <laughs> Which is a shame, because it's a brilliant piece of trivia. Although it is never addressed by name in the book, the presence of two of his known associates, Monk Mayfair and Ham Brooks, makes it as clear as the presence of the shadow in the New York adventure. The Red Herd associate is even addressed as Lieutenant Colonel May, which was Mayfair's rank in World War One when he served with Doc and his other four companions. I like the idea of Doc Savage when his books were reissued, but I didn't read any of them. The formulaic plots made you think you read the same stuff over and over. I'm looking forward to your thoughts on Luke Cage. DC had a few black heroes at the time, but they haven't worn as well. Maybe Marvel did it better. Michael Ridge. Well, thank you very much for emailing, Michael. I hope you enjoyed the Luke Cage episode, because we did. Mm-hmm. I had a ball with the Luke Cage episode. And the Iron Fist. Yeah. And the Supergirl. We had a good time with that. Did you say you had a balls bluff? I had a balls bluff with Luke Cage, and I was a big fan of Iron Fist. <laughs> and Bushmaster. And the Bushmaster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tom Panneris has emailed in with uh, a Scott Pilgrim email which we'll squeeze in just for you oh, okay. hello Leyland's Michael don't be too upset if you didn't get a lot of email from your Scott Pilgrim episode at least you guys get enough email to have a regular feedback segment I didn't get enough to maybe do a segment every few episodes getting off my huffy bike and into the real topic of the email which is Scott Pilgrim I completely missed this when it came out I'd heard of it probably from flipping through previews but I just didn't register I also never considered the movie mainly because by the time it came out I grew tired of Michael Cera. Your episode has changed my opinion on this. It sounds like an incredibly fun story with a very deep subtext, which I'm a huge sucker for. I'm also a huge sucker for coming-of-age stories that take place in the post-adolescence period where you're finally free, but not exactly sure what the heck you're going to do. Have fun in your early 20s, Michael. Furthermore, I want to tip my hat to you on your use of music throughout the episode. I love the idea of giving stories a soundtrack, and I always have a lot of fun incorporating songs into whatever podcast I'm working on. The problem is I always have to... The problem I always have is how much of a given song to put in at any given time. Do I run about 30 seconds? Do I use a verse and a chorus? Do I use the whole song? Will the audience still be listening after I play the song? You just went for it, and it worked incredibly well. So, bravo. I still have about six more episodes left in my effort to catch up, so I'll end this email and say keep up the great work. All the best, Tom Pannery. So well, thank you very much, Tom, host of Pop Culture Affidavit and In Country. Uh, the, the, the Nam, that's what it's called, isn't it? The Vietnam comic by Marvel. Yeah. Both good shows. Should listen to. Tom was far too classy to plug himself. He was. So I did it for him. 
And he says that email was for you, wasn't it? It was. Indeed. All right, well, we'll knock it on the head there for emails for this particular show. And we will return after a commercial break for another fine podcast. With the the part two, yeah, after the messages of the multiversity. Or something. Yeah. Whatever. We'll be back after these messages. A secret governmental organization operating behind the scenes. Task Force... X. Task Force X is an off-the-books government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release, serving as expendable agents for impossible missions. Succeed, and I'll shave time off your sentences. If we don't. You'll be dead. Any other stupid questions? The Suicide Squad, ran by Amanda Waller. I'm Amanda Waller. I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces. And there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics, Suicide Squad, and Checkmate. Mostly monthly from Headspeaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X and under Headcasts over at headspeaks.com. We can also be found on Facebook and Google Plus under Task Force X. Task Force X. Check it out. Or you'll answer to the wall. Nobody screws the wall! And now back to our show. And we're back. Are we? Because in my shows, I... (laughs) In your shows we say that, except in the Scott Pilgrim ones and last week where we didn't say that. Yeah, well now we're saying it, yeah, I'm bringing it back. Alright, you're making a, a stance. I am. Okay, right. Wiz- Wizard yo. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we're just going to carry on. Straight you got no, you got no intro, have you? I've, I've, it's part two of Multiversity. What you need to do is go back, listen to last week's show, or listen to these two back-to-back, save them. I'm not bothered. Yeah. We're, 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 we're generally quite open about stuff Listen like to them back-to-back, yeah. because at the Cannes Festival, I did originally publish them <laughs> as... A four-hour epic. Did you? But yeah. you were forced to edit it when the crowd didn't approve. I was, yeah. Because they screened it, right, when mm. they, they showed it. It was supposed to be in widescreen, but they only showed it on a... Four-by-three. four-by-three screen. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. Couldn't see how big he's are. Hey, you're not confusing this with the in, Indescribable Bastards or whatever it was called? Indescribable Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's all. Hey, hey, sorry, sorry, Hitler. I could not... I could not get a look on his face. Nine, 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 nine. <laughs> The Lucky Bastards, whatever it was called. What was it called? <laughs> the Lucky Bastards. Hey, bloody hell, look, we didn't get a shot that time. It was called something. It had bastards in it. It wasn't spelt right, because Quentin can't spell. Inglorious. That's it, Inglorious, yeah. Not like the Expendable Bastards, which was Sylvester Stallone. Actually, you know, I found out there's a reason why it's spelled differently. Because he can't spell? Uh, no, it's because it's phonetics. Is it really? It's, bastards. It's a New York accent, because in one scene... Um, not Tim Roth, to the one, the one who's a director, the hostile guy. Oh, Eli Roth. Eli Roth, yeah. His character, there's a flashback to when he buys his baseball bat and he goes around and everyone signs it and those are the bastards. Right. And it's the accent. Right. Okay. Yeah, but that was cut out. I think Inglorious is spelt wrong as well, though. Yeah, no, that's that's all. <laughs> <you know. laughs> Should we get on with the show? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Thunderworld Adventures is the first issue we're looking at. Two days. Yes. I say we're just going to look at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not actually going to talk. 
make for a very boring episode for people. Right, when we looked at this comic, it was great. Next! I was allowing you to, to talk about the... Oh, we don't, should I talk about the weather? All the government. All the cover. All the cover. Let's talk about the cover. The cover is... Um, who's that by? Uh, that's Cameron Stewart. Is that Cameron Stewart? It's a very good cover. It's just Captain Marvel looking all manly and doing that funny squinty thing that he used to do. Yeah. CC Bat used Captain to Captain Marvel doesn't have any eyes. He, he doesn't. No, he squints. Yeah. He squints a lot like Superman did in the early days. And uh, it's, it's very good. And there's lots of Savannahs in the background. I like it. I yeah. like it as a cover. I think it's quite impressive. It's what we were talking about earlier. Not muscular man more. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously got muscles. Muscles. Hasn't he? Cockles yeah. and muscles alive, alive. Oh, but uh, he's not. Although I don't know, he's got quite big biceps. Quite impressed by his biceps. Your sister would like those biceps. Okay. Sister's a big fan of arms, I've noticed. Alright. Far, far too young, but whatever. I, I don't know what to say about that, so we'll get right into it. So we'll move office. right on. Which Earths does this one take place in? Only on Earth 5. Oh, yeah. Earth 5. This one, because as you said last week, the, the Earths are all strimmed down the side. Mm hmm. And only, there's only one Earth in this comic book. There usually is. So this is not a multiversity. It's... It's a single-versity. It's, yeah. <laughs> a single The single-versity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell us about this comic, Michael. Captain Marvel and the Day That Never Was has art by Cameron Stewart and was coloured by Nathan Furburn. Who was it written by? It was written by Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison! As was every issue we're covering today. I think it's worth mentioning that. Okay. Well, as this being part two, I don't, I don't... Some people may listen to it without having listened to part one. I don't have any flashbacks. This is winter's coming, bitches. <laughs> you know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> On the eighth day, Savannah Day, the Rock of Eternity is attacked by Savannah's very own Eternity Space Station. Having tracked Captain Marvel's lightning to its source, Savannah has created an equation that grants his children magical superpowers. Fawcett City is the centre of time quakes that mix different time zones, which Billy Batson reports until the appearance of another Billy from the future, telling our Billy to look at the sun, to look at the clock. Future Billy feeds with the appearance of Black Savannah, and our Billy is attacked by the Savannah offspring. Billy calls on the power of Shazam and changes, blowing the children away as Captain Marvel, and also alerting the Marvel family by whistling. Savannah, on his space station, chats with the other Savannahs from across the multiverse. Having used comics, the Savannah has contacted each other and collected suspendium from their worlds to create a synthetic day. Using the Rock of Eternity, Savannah can mine more and more suspendium to create synthetic time which he can then sell. Captain Marvel continues to fight the Savannah family who only acted as distractions while Savannah released the monster society. Arriving on the scene are the Lieutenant Marvels who fight the monsters whilst Captain Marvel flies through the train station where he first went to the rock. Having made it to Savannah's ship, Captain Marvel confronts him only to witness his transformation into Black Savannah. Black Savannah beats Marvel, but then he remembers and changes into Billy, using the suspendium to warn the Billy of the past. Savannah attacks one final time and believes that he has won, but Savannah's betrayed each other and gave only small amounts of suspendium creating a short eight-hour day. Returning to normal, Savannah has lost. The next day, Junior shows Captain Marvel the comic Savannah had, an SOS to other worlds, but Captain Marvel has no interest in bleak endings and throws the comic away. Sending out an SOS. It's a bit of a motif in this series. Mm, it is, sending out an SOS. Yeah. Does he like the police, Grant Morrison? 
Or did they arrest him on numerous occasions for being high? I, I don't know. Uh, the omniscient narrator who addresses the reader. Normally in Stan Lee comic books. Mm. Normally sounded like Stan Lee in Stan Lee comic books. Excelsior. That's the one. Believers. Yeah, is on he the Rock a, of Eternity. On the Rock of Eternity, which was an arc in JLA, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But it was also the home which is on, which used to be like a big tower. Which is now the, that, that big it, it's obelisk. Now, yeah, it's now a floating Sims crystal. <laughs> uh, the, the omniscient narrator is actually the ancient one. He's not called the ancient one, is he, in this? He's Shazam, isn't he, the wizard? Yeah, yeah. The ancient one's Doctor Strange, isn't it? Mm. They both just hang around in caves. Yeah. And have big, long beards. Um, it seems a tad on the nose to me that he was actually addressing us again, but whatever. It was alright. It works for this comic bit, doesn't it? Or do you do not agree? Yeah, yeah. Extra day has been added to the week, Savannah Day. So the week now has eight days. Yes. So he's not replaced a day. No, he's added a new one. If he's added another day to the week, is it another working day or is it a weekend? Because if it's a weekend, I'm all for it. It's it's Savannah, so I reckon he, he makes us all mine suspendium. Suspendium. That's what it's called. Right. Is, does that keep your pants up? It it. <laughs> Does it not? I don't think so. Alright, okay, so suspendium does not keep your trousers well. You, well, can, well. you can travel through time with it, so you can travel to a time when your pants weren't falling down. Yeah, 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 okay, fair enough. I do like the shot of the Rock of Eternity mm. next to the other Rock of Eternity, which is much bigger because Sivan is a little tiny bloke. Yeah, he so is. So he's, uh, he's obviously um, compensating for something, I think somebody said somewhere. Seems quite appropriate. Billy Batson. Is the child who becomes Captain Marvel now works for Wiz Media, whereas he used to work for Wiz Radio, mm. which makes sense if you're updating these things. Uh, the line about loosely enforced child labour laws, yeah, when he asks how does Billy do it, was really quite funny. There's a lot of little funny bits in there. Yeah. Grant Morrison's got a career as a comedy writer if he can play it straight, because mm. when he plays it straight, his comedy's funnier. Yeah, like in this one. This is a pretty much a straightforward Captain Marvel comic. And it, it's really fun. Yeah, and it's, everything else it's really fun and light-hearted. And, but the dialogue is very funny. Yeah. Because he's playing it straight. It's kind of like the Batman 66 thing, isn't it? Mm. Adam West was playing it for real, so it worked. The art all the way through is great. Cameron Stewart yeah. adapting his more cartoony art style. Um, I, I was a bit disappointed with the, the um, introduction of Captain Marvel. Why? It's quite an underwhelming image. Yeah, he just the lightning hits him and he changes. The, the, oh, yeah. you mean the full page shot of it? Yeah, oh, it's all right. It does the job. Yeah, it does. Introduces Captain Marvel to the comic book. I like it says Billy's safe. Yeah, and you like the, so they, do they know he's Billy Batson? I, I'm assuming he doesn't, but he does change mm. into Billy Batson and back into Sam right in front of Savannah. Yeah, I did like this here where Billy meets Billy. Yeah. And sets up the story from later on. Mm-hmm. Which is quite cool. Yeah. And very cleverly done. And I like that he's holding, like, the rocks that uh, Richard Pryor gave to Superman in Superman 3. Okay. That's that, that's that thing that he gave him. That right. had tar in it and made him evil Superman and start flicking peanuts at places and shagging Pamela Stevenson. And when confronted about it, our moral upright hero said, That wasn't me, lady. <laughs> oh, cheers, Superman. <laughs> Wham, bam, thanks, Superman. Super ghosting. Yeah, so I like that. That was that was quite funny. We also get our first look at Captain Marvel Jr., who's, who's looking at Batman comics. Yeah. But if you look in the other hand, he's got the Legion of Super... Was it Superheroes? The Super Society. The, I, call it, I always call it Legion, don't I? Yeah. I did that last week as well. That's, I always... 
when they're doing it in this issue, since they, they keep using comics, they keep referencing them, and yeah. they do it all the way through they it. They do indeed. It's a bit, I find it a bit, like, they can't make their mind up which ones they want to draw on and which ones they want to pick. Well, won't have they been added in post? Yeah. Because wouldn't it have made more sense if throughout the entire run it was a copy of Ultra Comics? I guess, yeah. Whereas in this one, both Captain Marvel Jr. though and Savannah later on, they've got copies of the Super Society of Superheroes. And that one kind of makes sense, because that's the first SOS one. It does, and it does mention in the, the Ultra Comics is the big bad. Yeah. And that's the one that's haunted. So it kind of makes sense that Savannah reading that one led him to understand that he can make a bridge between worlds yeah. to contact the other Savannahs, which he does here. And that really is the only continuing plot thread from this issue, isn't the it? The Ultra Comics. Yeah, this one and Master Men. Yeah. You can largely ignore. Uh, I, I don't think you can ignore the Shazam one. Can you not? I mean, I thought this was one of the better ones, but in the overall narrative... This sets up Sivana contacting the Bridge of Worlds, which pays off later. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of the overall storyline, this one isn't really that important, other than the Sivana stuff. Yeah, I guess. And you get the Sivana stuff from the other issue. But it, it, it all starts here. Yes, it does all start here. Your mum thought Sivana was cute. <laughs> Alright. Which um, I didn't quite know what to, to make of, to be honest with you. I did find it hysterical reading this issue that a man who's had his work analysed and picked apart by chin-stroking philosophers, pretty much more than any other comic creator save for Alan Moore, wrote a comic here mm-hmm. that is essentially saying that if you're overanalyzing and picking apart this work, it ruins the fun. Okay. Wasn't that the theme of this issue? Yeah. Stop picking it apart, have fun with it. He certainly takes the fun out of podcasting, doesn't he? <laughs> Are we supposed to take it apart, then? If he's so told us not to. But if we say it is fun, we can have fun with it. We fun. can have fun with it. And I, I, it is a lot of fun. It is great. I like Savannah in this one, because he is an old-fashioned, cackling yeah. bad guy, isn't he? And he actually makes reference to that in the story, because well, of course he does. It, it comes from 52, when Morrison worked on the Savannah. Right. Um... Story, and he said it was the most funny ad on it because he loves writing. Maverick scientist presented a stereotypical cackling madman. Yeah, yeah, and he does it well. Hmm? Savannah's actually a lot of fun in this issue. I like the the Mexican wrestler Savannah. I like Mexican wrestler Savannah as well, and one with a goatee beard, and the one's a snake. And we'll we'll meet him a lot more later on. The one who's not there is um, the one you called Hannibal Lecter, Savannah. Yeah, that, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's not in that particular... He's in this later on, though, isn't he? He is. Uh, Savannah says The Fountainhead, when he's talking about the source of all energy, which is a book by Anne Rand, which I only know because right. your mum was watching Gilmore Girls the other day, and okay. Rory and Jess were talking about this very book. Oh, OK. And I remember going, I've just read and They were talking about Thunder Comics. No, they were talking about The Fountainhead by <laughs> Anne Rand. They weren't talking about Grant Morrison Thunder Comics, because that would have been impressive. That would have been. Given that that issue, episode, sorry, of the Gilmore Girls heard about ten years ago. That would have really enhanced the story. <laughs> it, it would really have enhanced this comic. He just pulled out an ultra comic. Yes, from, and you would have gone, jeez, Grant Morrison's <laughs> right. That actually would have been really funny if yeah. uh, Rory Gilmore pulled out an Ultra Comics comic. Ten years before it came out. And said out. to Milo Ventimaglia, you look like Sylvester Stallone. And then said... Here, read this comic. Here, read this comic, it's haunted. Yeah. That would have been brilliant. Here, read this comic and, and go away. That's, a, that's a, a, a pop culture reference the Gilmore Girls never made. One that hadn't happened yet? Yeah, that would have been brilliant. <laughs> The fight between these three bad guys and Captain Marvel's crew, the art's quite invincible. 
yeah. places, which isn't a bad thing. But hitting the one in yellow, and I don't know the names, with a cherry picker and him landing on the moon mm. was funny. It was. Because this was a fun comic. I mean, it's, it's a little bit... I can't believe I'm going to do this. I'm going to nitpick the laws of physics in a Grant Morrison Captain Marvel comic where he's quite clearly told me in no uncertain terms yeah. not to nitpick the comic. But picking up the cherry picker like that, wouldn't the arm just snap off? If you were swinging, you give it a bit of a swing and then picked it up, mm. depending on how fast you were moving, right. with enough momentum, you could carry it, have the thingy... And it not snap off. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. Or should I just laugh at it? Because yeah. it's funny. Yeah, it's a Golden Age story. Stop it. It's, stop it's a Golden or Silver Age Captain Marvel story. Uh, there's so. a great bit as well with um, She Savannah. Yes. Flirting. Yeah. With uh, Captain Marvel Jr. and him pretending that he's falling for it, and then he gets her to say her name. So is she like Mr. McShay's Petalek? No, it's Captain Marvel. If he says Shazam. Oh, oh right, so it is, yeah. yeah. They revert back to normal. I, I love it. It's like, um, well, uh, she sure does display some pretty convincing evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because she's rather a buxom girl. Yep. Isn't she? I prefer Mary Marvel. She seems quite <laughs> sweet to me. She's quite like a nice girl. Wouldn't think of her to shave her off and kill a bunch of people. No, you would not think that that's what happens. <laughs> no. I mean, life's just not predictable, <laughs> is it? Who can say what these things will happen? Does time move more quickly on Savannah Day? Yes. Because it seems to me that it starts off quite early on and then it's dark. Since the big major plot point of it is that it's only eight hours long. Yes. Well, like Captain Marvel does answer my question later on. I wrote that note as I was reading the comment. Oh, right. Okay, okay. So I did get to the end and go, okay. Again with underwhelming art, though. When he flies through the subway station and there's all those people just looking... All those people? Like, two of them? Look at those three people <laughs> that just look like they don't care. And then the art is like, where are you going, Captain Marvel? No, don't leave us! And they just look like they don't care. Okay. The art doesn't match up with the dialogue. I like the, the team of Captain Marvel acolytes. Actually, I don't know a lot about Captain Marvel. We've mentioned this on the show before. When I was growing up, Captain Marvel was that guy Superman fought. Yeah. And that was pretty much his claim to fame with me. I'm a big fan of issues of DC Comics Presents or Superman or Justice League or whatever where Superman and Captain Marvel fight. Mm. Because as far as I was concerned, that's what they did. So I didn't really know a lot about Captain Marvel in and of himself. And he doesn't fight Superman in this one. Which is quite a surprise for me. I, will have to, I thought that was his old way <laughs> But it's good. But I liked his Captain Marvel acolytes. Yeah, I didn't know who the Lieutenant Marvels are. I, I knew of the Society of Monsters, the Monster Society. Mm. But I didn't know them. So, it, But the so, way it's written, you don't need to know. No, no, no. It didn't play any impact on the non-enjoyment of the issue for me. Because once this issue starts, it just keeps going until the end. And, and it's, it's just it's maintaining just, it. It's just a fun romp. Yeah. Is that Tony the Tiger then? It could be. So who's the talking tiger later on in Commander? Oh, he's got a different name. Has he got a different talking tiger? Yeah, I wrote in the synopsis. Right, okay, sorry. Well, we'll get there later on then, I suppose. Um, that was very Doctor Who. The double-page spread of Captain Marvel appearing in the middle of a lot of traffic cars in mid-air. Mm. That was, um, I can't remember what episode it was. Midnight? Was it Midnight? I don't know. It's one with the cats in. One of the human cats. That is the one I don't remember at all. Alright. Well, it's that one. The Macra are in it, I think. Something like that. But it's probably also a 2000 AD story. Could be. Russell T. Davis seems to like ripping off 2000 AD. Most Savannah's one in, one's a baby. Yeah. <laughs> with a dummy on. And one's thing, you're from Breaking Bad, Walter White. Do you? Savannah. Oh, there you go, there's your Hannibal Lecter guy. Making <laughs> his first appearance. 
the pretty little heroine and the bright boy. Bring them to me. I can't wait to mess them up bad. And I said to you, I read this as Richard O'Brien. Yeah, Which yeah. totally works, it does work. Richard I, O'Brien I, I love, I love Savannah's reaction. Uh, quite. Yeah, well, he's a Golden Age comic book yeah. Savannah, isn't he? So he's like, well, you're, you're a bit intense, dude. It's it's the, the dark, modern, edgy era of supervillain, mm. which Morrison had a part in, Yeah, with the Golden Age supervillain, which Morrison is a fan of. Yeah, do you think he kind of regrets his career path at some point, that he's made everything dark and gritty and miserable? you got to change as an artist. Yeah, but now he wants to go back to the Golden Age. I... I does Neil Young regret trans? I don't know. Does he regret being trans? <laughs> was that not what you meant? That was not what I meant. All oh, right. Okay. Sorry. I'm going down a different path. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the death of Captain Marvel is obviously a famous graphic novel, but from another comics company. Is it? Yeah, it's from oh, um, Marvel. Marvel Comics. Yeah. Or oh, whatever the equivalent yeah, of. Yeah. Yeah. In this particular. I was thinking of this Captain Marvel because obviously the. So similar. Yeah. It was funny that uh, Golden Age Captain Marvel was scared of. Um, Hannibal Captain Marvel. Yeah. It was. A lot of this was funny. Mm. A lot of this was quite hysterically funny. Science and magic are the same thing, says Captain Marvel, which sounds very much like the writer speaking through his character. <laughs> Doesn't it? I don't think they are. See, because, you know, magic's not real. Just just ask the insane clown posse. <laughs> and, and the time loop stuff is really well done. Earlier in the issue, we mentioned it, that we saw another Billy Batson appear to one Billy of what was to come. And the dialogue matches up, but what makes it cool is both future and past Billy answer the same question, but from different sources. So, you think you're so clever, don't you? And the answer is just clever enough, is both answered in the past and in the present. Yeah. So, I thought that was really clever. Billy answered the same question two different times, Mm. in two different time frames to two different people. Yeah. But it still works. It yeah. was really good. It was really clever, that. And um, I just wondered, is Suspendium a reference to Suspension of Disbelief? It could be. It could very well be. I like Captain Marvel's reaction to the uh, Society of Superheroes. Whatever happened to happy endings? I'll get out and destroy everything. Huh. That sounds to me like tomorrow's big adventure. You know how I like to read this ending? How? Whatever happened to happy endings, and those are the two doves that we saw in Pax Americana. Right. Which represented... What Peacemaker and his missus. Right. Very good. Yeah. Nice touch. Mm-hmm. I just thought they looked like they were doing that other homage to... Yeah. Thing I mean, I could be completely BSing, but... No, it's, it's, as good a, it's as good a theory as ever. Yeah. In a, a comic book that we've been told we're not to overanalyze. Yeah. And you just overanalyzed it. I didn't overanalyze it. No. <laughs> there was a conclusion and I stepped to it. There was a conclusion and I stepped to it. That's yeah. absolutely brilliant. Yeah. This was absolutely joyous. It really was a lot of fun. It manages to touch on all the themes of this series, over-analysis, commentary on stories, reflection on comics' place in society, and does it in an absolutely more wonderful and delightful way than um, any of the other issues. Yeah. So it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, that's good as well. It is. A couple of places you pointed out where it's a bit rough, but uh, nothing, nothing too problematic or anything was there I enjoyed it what did you think of that one I, I, I did really enjoy it it was pretty fun especially after last month's mm. which as good as it was was quite heavy yeah mm. so this was a lot more fun and yeah. refreshing it was very light and fluffy and I, I liked it a lot I want to see Godzilla fighting the, society, the monster society though yeah that would be so cool well I wanted to see more of that yeah to be honest with you uh, next up is the Multiversity Guidebook which as I was saying last week was the one that was very very last minute 
Is it? It's yeah. just not part of the overall narrative. Uh, it, it works into it, but like I was saying, the artist solicited was not the artist on the book. Right. Who was the who's the cover by? The cover was by Ryan Hughes. Right. I think it was who's worked with Morrison since The Invisibles. Right, because the cover is very cartoony, which belies that this is actually one of the darker. Yeah. Of the of the stories, and it's you know, as bats kind of mm. with minor bat. It's brave and the bold, the cartoon. Isn't yeah, it, it is. Ryan Hughes also designed the um, map as well. Right, well, the map of the multiverse is in this, and the, the House of Heroes Under Siege, Meet the Superheroes of 52 Earths, The Last Boy on Earth Faces His Destiny. It's got a very brave and the bold cartoony cover. Yeah. Which doesn't really sit well with the actual story. I think this issue only came about, actually, because as a Comic-Con exclusive, they gave away maps, didn't they? Yeah. Proper large prints of it. Yeah. And to give them away to the general public, Morrison v. Morrison integrated it into his narrative. Right. So I think that's the only reason this actually exists. Well, it, it works, doesn't it? Yeah. In true Grant Morrison fashion. Tell us about this one. Maps and Legends has art by Marcus Toe and Paolo Sequeira. Who should have been the artist? I've no idea. Oh, all right. Um, and Colours by Dave McCaig and High Five. New adventures in. Yeah, well, that's funny you should say that. Maps and Legends is an R.E.M. song and a Michael Chabon novel. Uh, and it fits this story quite well. It, it literally, which is unusual for Grant Morris, but given that it was originally on um, Fables of the Reconstruction, I presume it has its origins in the South of America in okay. somewhere. That's just a guess. I don't know. I didn't look it up or anything. It's not like we do research for this show. <laughs> Anyway, tell us about Maps and Legends. The Little League were tricked into a raid on Savannah's Lure, where an ambush greeted them, killing Martian Manhunter, Aquaman, Steel and The Flash. Batman defends Green Arrow and Hawkman as they escape, but someone comes out of the doorway the Savannahs went into, the Batman of Earth-17. On the Savannah ship, Psycho Savannah introduces Little Savannah to the rest before he's devoured by Snake Savannah and Vampire Savannah. <laughs> they then leave when the Marvels attack the ship, but Psycho Savannah wants to stay to get a good look at Murray Marvel. With no way out of the lure, Little Batman finds Savannah's comic, The Multiversity Guidebook, a map of the 52 worlds. On Earth-51, Commandy, Ben Boxer and Tufton land on the shores of the Island of the God Watchers. They find a cave, the tomb of Darkseid, as the new gods watch. However, someone opened the tomb freeing Darkseid, leaving behind nothing but comics and stories. Nick Suotin watches. He freed Darkseid, whose tomb crumbles as Commandy and Co. escape. Batman 17 finds the machine that Savannah's left him, but with no power there is no portal, so little Batman looks for the guidebook to find a way out. He works out that each world has its own note, and so uses his bat sonar to activate the machine. Savannah's robots break down the door, and Batman 17 fights them, telling little Batman to warn those on his world of Darkseid. He flees and is greeted by the Atomic Knights of Justice. Batman 17, meanwhile, is picked up and sent to the House of Heroes, as Hell Machine of the Gentry attacks and drains the Harbinger's mind. Back on Earth-42, the empty hand awakens the fallen little leaguers. Um, the Savannahs of the Shazam issue that we just talked about are all back. And uh, what you've got here is Hannibal Lecter, Savannah, burning John Johns and Cyborg alive and skewering Acumen. Aquaman. No, Acumen. Which, not Acumen. That's a completely different thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Acumen. You've got a lot of business Acumen. <laughs> I've got a lot of business Aquaman. 
Um, which would be fine if this wasn't the little Gotham versions of the characters yeah. that we've just watched get gutted on page one. I want the Thunderworld Adventures back, please. <laughs> I, I love the little, little Savannah as well. Mm. Like, just in shock of everything. Yeah, he's not a big fan of what uh, Hannibal Lecter Savannah's up to, is he? I love the smell of burning super flesh. You didn't love me! <laughs> Bit of Richard O'Brien for you. I really love that Batman, Lil Batman, Lil Gotham Batman. As a bat. <laughs> as a shout repellent bat spray. Which is really, you know, a fire extinguisher. extinguisher. A, a little bat fire extinguisher. But it conjures up images of Adam West, mm. doesn't it? So I do like that. It's, it's very... I don't know, I like the Lil Gotham characters, but putting them in with Hannibal Lecter Batmans. Yeah. It's a bit off, isn't it? Well, it's supposed, it's supposed to be. That's where you get with mixing up worlds, really. Yeah, it is. It's supposed to be. The also, ba- did you notice Hawkman and Green Arrow just disappear? Yeah, Hawkman and Green Arrow are behind him. And they, well, no, did they get shot? No, because you never see the bodies. And considering half the issue is them trying to find. Oh no, because then it, it's the Batman of Earth Forty Two who shows up and shoots the robots that are about to shoot them, don't he? No, yeah, we're, we're on Earth Forty Two now. That's Batman Seventeen. All oh, right, the Batman of Earth Seventeen. It's very confusing. It is. So yeah, you're right. He shoots all the robots. Nothing happens to Hawkman and, and Lil Green Arrow. But yeah, then they just disappear. Hmm. Maybe they were just like when, in video games when characters aren't doing anything, they just wander off. Yeah. yeah. Do their, maybe they're having their own <laughs> adventure somewhere that we're just not privy to. That seems okay. The Batman of Earth 17 who shows up to rescue Lil Batman looks like a cross between As Bats, Batman Beyond, and that Superman the animated series action figure you used to have. You know who I think it looks like? Who does he look like? Exactly like him. Mm. Buzz Lightyear. He does look like Buzz Lightyear. He's got the dome around his head. He's got the wings. Yeah. That's yeah. Buzz Lightyear. It's Buzz Light Batman. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Right. Okay, yeah, you're right. You win. I'll give you that. I like it when you say that. <laughs> Winning. <laughs> uh, the Legion of Savannahs are incredibly creepy. Yeah. Especially the one... Is the one that with vampire teeth. Yeah, that's Vampire Savannah. Right, and um, female Savannah. But we've already seen a, w- a place where it's all women, haven't we? Yeah, and Steel Savannah. Steel Savannah, so that's quite... And the Snake Savannah. He was the funniest one. Mm. I liked Serpent Savannah, that was good. Why is Lil Batman Dick Grayson? Because didn't Lil Gotham start when Batman was Dick Grayson? I have no idea. Let's just say it is. Alright, he's adorably cute yeah. in that manga kind of, big eyes kind of way. Mm. So, I, I liked the little Gotham characters. Yeah. I <laughs> thought they were quite funny. Uh, other than that, other than Snake Savannah, Serpent Savannah. Eating yeah, Little Savannah. And being, and essentially having that fight me, talking like the lizard. Oh, it's least a, it leads to a really funny gag yeah, later on, yeah. which we'll talk about when we get there. But yeah, Snake Savannah eats the little one. Which is a bit much. Mm. I thought, but alright. The material set on Earth... Oh, dear God. Jeff Johns, John Jr. on Super... Let's turn the page. <laughs> I love... I was a big fan of the material set on Earth 51. Because I've always got a soft spot for Commander. Yeah, I really like the dark side as well. Especially Morrison's dark side. Mm. And who doesn't love talking tigers? Yeah, okay. It's like Tony the Tiger's back. Yeah. They're great! <laughs> Which he could be talking about the comics, couldn't he? Yeah, you're a big fan of uh, Grant Morrison's Dark Side, aren't you? Yeah. This I really like this middle section. I really like this middle section on Commandy Land. And I have Commandy a, Land. Where is that? Commandy Land. It's Earth 50, that whatever. Like a theme park where that happens. Commandy Land would be a brilliant theme park. It, it's just all water. Yeah, and, and, you, and you've got to fight for your life. 
It's like the Hunger Games of theme parks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Battle Royale in Commandy Land. Commandy Land is like just a bit off from Thunderdome. <laughs> Two men enter, one man leaves. That is beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, beyond Commandy Land. <laughs> yeah, that'd be quite brilliant. I also have a soft spot for Omac. So basically, what Morrison's done here is take all my Grant Morrison soft spots. Yeah. And pull them into one story. This is the Kirbyverse. It is the Kirbyverse. That's absolutely right. And stories can be dangerous. Is a, a line of dialogue. Mm. In this, in this here that Commandy has, which um, pretty much sums up Morrison's work, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's his idea that uh, the themes and ideas expressed in a story can ultimately be more revolutionary, more rebellious, and provoke more interesting thoughts and ideas, more iconoclastic thoughts and ideas than than anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, ideas cannot be contained. Yeah. Is his idea, and the, he talks about that indirectly. In an awful lot of these issues, that yeah. the thoughts and ideas expressed in stories, in comics, in, and by extension movies and television, lesser to extent television, I suppose, the, especially now, can be can be expressed in such a way as to really engage your audience, and that gets them thinking, and that makes the next generation more interesting and less open to the susceptible things that maybe certain people in charge want you to fall for if you yeah. start thinking and questioning. One of the big problems with that is though that a lot of the generation who were inspired by comics who are now writing comics Mm. just want to write those comics that inspired them no they don't want to write something that they don't own yeah I think is the bottom line and so I think the, the, the mainstream comic book medium has become stagnant by people who don't want to give the best creations to Marvel or DC so essentially what you're left behind in a situation is that they're just rehashing old ideas because they don't want to do that. They just want to be Matt Fraction yeah. and go and run off to Image Comics once they've made the name Rising Harker. Essentially. You know. Well, that's not dissing on Matt Fraction. Essentially that's what he's done. Edwin yeah. Baker's done the same thing. Frank Miller did the same thing. Jack Kirby probably would have done the same thing if the other game in town hadn't been DC Comics. Mm. If he'd have gone to the equivalent of Image back in 1970, he would own the fourth world. Yeah. Because that's what he would have done for Image Comics, isn't it? So mm. that would all be his now. But the fact that um, Kirby could go and have complete freedom over creating that, mm. I don't think many people have that freedom in comics now. No, I think it's I think it's wider open now, because you've got digital, and you can write your own digital comics and yeah. image. Well, when you're working for like a mainstream, say DC, if Kirby was writing... Cre- if Kirby created New Gods today... Yeah. I don't think he would have as much freedom on it as he would have had then. Unless he created it for Image. Yeah. Where he would be allowed to do whatever he wanted. Which essentially is the kind of point that we're making. Yeah. Mainstream comics are are in this kind of rehash period where writers don't want to give them new stuff. Yep. So you're kind of left in a cycle of, well, what do we do then? What happens when you don't pay for uh, yeah the, the plane tickets of your artist wife? Essentially, if they'd have paid a plane ticket for Jim Lee's wife, the comic industry would be industry. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's very true. Um, Biomac is reading the comic that he's actually in. Yeah. Which is this a metatextual first? So far, they've all read Ultra Comics. Or another another issue of Multiversa. They've never actually read the comic that they themselves are in, other than unless you're Animal Man. Yeah, at the beginning of this, Savannah had the guidebook itself in his pocket. Mm. Batman read the first page of the Commandyland one because that transition into Commandyland. Yeah, Uh, my favourite part of the book is this bit in Commandyland where they're actually leafing through this comic. 
Yeah. So what it becomes at this point is Biomac looking at the very comic you're reading, yeah. and you're reading the bits that he's reading yeah. as he's reading them. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Grant, mate, you know? <laughs> but this ended up being my actual favourite part of the book. It is really good. Yeah. And it's one of those where, despite how much they say crisis never happened, final crisis never happened... For this to work, for most of the stories they're writing at the moment, mm-hmm. over at Justice League, for example, that doesn't work unless you have Crisis. Well, you need that history and you need those stories. Well, I was just going to agree with you almost 100% that this puts lie to Didio's theory that you have to completely wipe it all away to make it make sense. Grant Morrison here takes pre Crisis, including the Silver Age, the post Crisis, Zero Hour, Infinite Crisis, 52. Final Crisis, the new 52, the miniseries 52, yeah. and Flashpoint, and in four pages, he makes it work. He gives you a complete history yeah. of... yeah. In four pages, he takes the entire history of the DC Universe and melds it into a cohesive whole, and it works. Yeah. Four pages, that's all it took him. That's probably why this is my favourite part of the book. It's, it's the complete history of the DC Universe. In four pages. Yeah. But hats off to him for this. Got to yeah. say, whatever problems I may have had with him. Uh, but the art is fantastic in these four pages as it well. It does. It still looks like the artist, but it reflects yeah. the artist who worked on those stories. Yeah, and the, the, there's a, a recreation of the Flash of Two Worlds, which is rather famous. And there's a recreation of the first time the Justice Society met the Justice League, mm. which is beautifully done. And then there's recreations of panels from Crisis on Infinite Earths. There's recreations of stuff from Zero Hour. I love that Zero Hour got included. Yeah, but that's what I mean. He made it. He makes it all work in three, four pages. Yeah. Dear Dan, (laughs) you published this comic. Look, this comic makes the entire history of the DC Universe work. (laughs) They should have these four pages pinned up in the DC offices. Yeah, they should have these four pages pinned up in every writer and artist office in the DC Universe. Because he totally sells you on the idea that this complete shared universe works. Yeah. So fur player, Mr. Morrison, you did exceptionally well though. It works as a coherent narrative in the hands of a writer that can do it justice. Yeah. Basically, don't it? Uh, lots more Rubik's Cube showing up. Because they're important. Because they're important. And I like that little Batman has little Gotham yeah. saying this was a crossover. <laughs> yeah. And I love that we had a crossover to this that you didn't have to read. It wasn't solicited as a crossover. It wasn't put in a reading list. It wasn't done anything. It was just, it was here. Well, I was wondering that. Do you not have this issue? No, I don't. And is it not going to be in the omnibus? I, I have no idea, because I was reading this. And the I'm little going, Gotham 12. Wow, okay. So that happened. I may have to try and see if we can pick that up then. Yeah. At the at a Comic Mart or something like that, because it looks quite interesting. And also, if nothing else, this made me like the little Gotham characters. Mm. <laughs> they were quite pleasant. And, and, and cute it was quite nice then we get into the guide book then we itself. get into the guidebook itself yeah which is uh, is interesting Earth Zero is the current DCU Earth One is the JMS Jeff Johns stuff interestingly while the other Teen Titans are mentioned even though that doesn't seem to have been very well received does it Teen was Titans Earth One Jeff Lemire one I think it was the Jeff oh, Lemire one was the Legion no it was Teen Titans they've not done a Legion one yet so what did Terry Dodson do wasn't he working on the Wonder Woman that never happened 
Oh, was no, that Adam that was, Hughes? Adam, that was all stuff. Right, okay, so I'm just thoroughly confused now. Yeah. There has been a Teen Titans volume that right, okay. doesn't seem to be particularly well received. I did think as well Wonder Woman's front and centre on Earth 1, yet her book hasn't come out yet. Yeah. We've got three volumes of Superman, two volumes of Batman, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, Earth Zero's the new 52, but that doesn't look like Jim Lee. No, it's the other one. Um, the one that isn't Jim Lee. The one who did Teen Titans. Let me have a look. Earth One, Brett Booth. Yeah, there we go. Alright, well he worked with Jim Lee a lot, didn't he? Mm. Back in the day. Alright. Earth One is, is recognisably Gary Frank. Yeah. And uh, I like that he doesn't draw Superman to look like Christopher either. And his Wonder Woman's not bad either. Mm. His Wonder Woman's quite effective though. Uh, we're not going to go through all of them, but I did like the description of Earth 8. Frank really didn't draw his own Earth. No, no, he didn't. Earth 8. What was Earth 8? Earth 8. On a world... On this world, great power comes with great responsibility, and heroes often pay a high price for their dedication to justice. Earth 8 is home to the Battling Bug, Stuntmaster, Bestial Behemoth, Hyperius, and Major Max. Prominent hero teams include the Future Family, the Neo-Human G-Genomen, and the Retaliators, including Deadeye, Ladybug, Kite, Wonderjin, American Crusader, Red Dragon, and Machine Head. I wonder what universe that's referring to. Don't know. And I do like how the 8 is in the old DC. Is in the old DC comics logo. Yeah. Which I had not noticed till you just put it out. Mm-hmm. That's very good. Very good. Uh, very good point. Jay on that one. Yeah, Jay A couple of the artists. Who did Earth 11? Earth 11 looks quite nice. Emmanuel Lappuccino. I don't know who that is. But it's quite good. Brian Hitch did Earth 8 as well. And he did the Ultra Comics. One. And did he do the Ultra Comics That's as well? That's Kelly Jones on 43. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, we'll, we'll, we'll blitz through the whole thing. There's a new Frontier Earth. Earth 21 is yeah. New Frontier. Can we have more stories set there, please? <laughs> yeah, but they're only in the, uh, the the deluxe edition. It wouldn't bother me in the slightest bit. the absolute. Yeah, yeah alright, fair enough. Why don't they know what Earth uh, 14 is? I didn't get these. This is where my big problem with it comes in. There's a number of unknown worlds that he doesn't do anything with. And I get that he's trying to work this into the story because the description for the little Gotham ones say the highly terrible secrets and we <laughs> learn at the end that the machines yeah. the robots and that's the secret but the worlds that have a question mark on it if they're going to do that at least tell us what they are in a later issue which I thought they would have done but <laughs> ultimately he didn't well ultimately we'll get to the end of this and none of the loose ends are tied up no really the fact that he's tying this into the story by keeping these things away from us mm. to then just never shed light on especially if you said this is his, what, his swan song yeah. Unless he's going to come out of retirement. This was supposed to be the NDC, which is kind of... When we get to the end, I'll talk about it, but I like the ending and I don't like it at the same time. That's fair enough. Dan Jurgens drew Earth 9, which is, uh, I don't recognise. Uh, Earth 16 was the Earth Me Earth, which we talked about last week. We've already talked about that. Chris Burnham did the Captain Carrot Landers, which was... Did he? Yeah. Which is quite funny. Kingdom Come has an Earth. Yeah. Earth 23 was also established as the home of uh, Calvin Ellis, who's uh, the president Superman, lots of uh, no Earths though. There's a Generations Earth, and John Byrne did not draw that. Who drew Earth 38? And it's not like John Byrne could, John Bogdanov drew it. Why couldn't John Byrne draw it? It's not like he's busy (laughs) doing Photoshop Star Trek comics. (laughs) Sure, he could have drawn a little panel, it wouldn't have killed him, would it? I wouldn't have thought so. Lil Gotham characters are simply adorable on Earth 42, especially Wonder Woman. Yeah. Wonder Woman's just simply adorable. Ivan Reese is a good little. Little Wonder Woman later on as well. Does he? I'll have a look later on. 42, who did that? Two, McCraig. Who's two? 
Oh, I think that's just these. Oh, right. Yeah, Kelly Jones came back for uh, Vampire Land, which is Earth 43, which is obviously a nod to, um, what was it called? Black Rain, Dark Rain, yeah. Blood Rain, something like that. And we get the Robo Superman from Action Comics. Robo Superman. Earth 47. And we get Prez. <laughs> the Prez, yeah. Uh, Earth 47 is uh, full of hep cats. Yeah. I do like Superman with an afro. <laughs> and Shaggy! What's Shaggy doing there? Oh. Shaggy! Was Prez created by Neil Gaiman or did he just use No, him? the Prez was a 1970s character. Right, okay. But Grandpa Peter's got some issues with the Prez. Right. Upstairs in the attic. You'll have to look them up and see if they're as wacky as you think they are. Uh, Earth 44, Dr. Tornado looks exactly like Grant Morrison. Do you think that's, that's a coincidence? I don't know. Is that like his Hitchcockian cameo for this week? <laughs> If we go back and he's in every single issue, he's in every single. If we find him, yeah, uh, this was really fun. Actually, I, I really quite enjoyed this. The little Gotham character is really cute and funny. The story felt like it was one of those old JSA JLA team ups across multiple worlds. I like the art and the who's who guide to all the worlds actually helped clear up a lot of stuff. A tad more violent, yeah, than those old team ups. But the contrast of putting little Batman with the Batman of Nova America was odd but interesting one of the better issues that mm. and that I liked all the guidebook stuff yeah it was very who's who in the, the DC universe or, yeah or the official handbook of the Marvel universe that kind of stuff yeah, that yeah. they did an awful lot of in the 80s one of my big problems with it though is that with the worlds they keep secret and with this the dark side mm. subplot they kind of he kind of hypes a bit up and adds a lot of tension that ultimately doesn't pay off. Right. Dark Side's only mentioned in one panel yeah. in a later issue. And there's a lot of us though that we never find anything about. Yeah. But as we've, we've not got there yet, but as we'll say when we get to the last issue, as an ending, it's yeah. moderately satisfying. Mm. But as an ending, you're left a little bit wanting. Yeah. But we'll get there. We, we will. Though. We've got an issue to cover that we both really violently disagreed upon. And not in a way you'd expect. No, not in a way you'd expect. Uh, Mastermind number one. No, it's not Mastermind, is it? It's Master Men. Master Men number one. Overman versus Uncle Sam. Has Superman and Uncle Sam arm wrestling above a globe of the earth by Jim Lee and presumably Scott Williams. Impossible. You must be cheating. You bet I'm cheating. But you won't know how until it's too late. I like that cover. I think it could have done with not being in the Nazi golden frame. Well, I was just going to say, I think this is the third version of this cover. What? There was one for the solicitations. Right. There's one at the back of the guidebook. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, the one for the back of the guidebook is, is a full zoom in on of that image, which yeah. is much nicer. And, and it's much clearer that it's a globe yeah. on that one in the back of the guidebook. The frame's completely different as well. I actually prefer the one in the back of the guidebook. Yeah. And then Ryan Hughes was the one who uh, put it in the frame, I'm assuming. The f- if they were going to do it in the frame, they could have done it a lot better. Actually yeah. frame the entire cover yeah. and work the rest into it somehow. It's a better cover in the back of the guidebook than it is on the cover of the comic. But again, this only takes place on one Earth. Earth 10. Yes. Which is uh, is quite interesting. Very good. Very Golden Age Superman, it's imagery though, isn't mm. it? But yeah, you're right. It would have been better without that frame. Splendor Falls is penciled by Jim Lee and inked by Scott Williams, Sandra Hope, Mark Irwin and Jonathan Glapion and coloured by Alex Sinclair and Jeremy Cox. I do think that may be the reason why he's got four inkers is uh, 
<laughs> just telling. Make sure it, it, it keeps to the release date. Well, it's very unlikely to not be inked by Scott Williams all the time. Mm. So, you know, maybe he'd popped out another child and, you know, it, nine months worth of planning yeah. just doesn't, isn't enough time for him. He was only announced as artist when this issue was solicited, so he wasn't announced as one of the... He got a book out in three months. Apparently. Maybe that's why he's got four inkers. <laughs> and why the Very, very crap. possible. <laughs> um... A space shuttle has landed in Sudetland, a shuttle from another world. Hitler is shown the ship, and is shown the ship's passenger, a small boy, super strong and invincible. The child will be the man of tomorrow. Seventeen years later, and the boy, now Overman, has defeated the United States, and the country now belongs to the Third Reich. Sixty years later, Overman is still grieving the death of his sister, Overgirl, whose memorial is attacked by the freedom fighter known only as Uncle Sam, who speaks in an ancient and dead language. A figure falls from the projected face of Sam, a figure that explodes upon impacting on the ground. In the Eagle's Nest, the Third Reichman's orbiting satellites argue the morality of their past actions before Leatherwing returns to torturing the terrorist. Huddled in a small bunker off the coast of Manhattan, Uncle Sam is introduced to the Freedom Fighters, a team of superheroes consisting of the survivors of the Nazi purges of the 50s and the 60s, created by this world's Nazi Savannah, who also informs Sam that his Trojan horse is in place. In an interview with Jürgen Olsen, Overman is asked about his expressed regret over the purges during the Hitler era and the upcoming annual performance of the Ring Cycline in New Beirut, a rumoured target of the Freedom Fighters. During the performance, the captured terrorist, the human bomb, breaks free and damages the eagle's nest, knocking it out of orbit, hurtling it towards Earth, towards New Beirut. At the performance, Uncle Sam's projection appears on stage and Overman flies into action, trying to stop the falling satellite. The nest crashes and destroys all of Metropolis. Overman wanted an end to the Thousand Year Reich, but all his guilt and grieving had only just begun. We should mention that the dead language was English. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of important. The Trojan horse was overman. The Trojan horse was overman. Well, you know. Um, I can't be the only one that thinks Hitler reading a Superman comic whilst on the shitter is a funny image in which to open a comic book. The only problem with that, though, is it was part of the preview, so it was funny before the issue even came out. Right, see, I'd, I'd forgotten that. Yeah. If I even saw it. And once again, um, I do like that we get um, thingy, sea monkeys. On the back of the comic. Yeah, yeah. Why would Hitler read a Superman comic book? Especially when he gets put, he's been punched in the face on the cover. Well, he's, he's, Superman's been punching, punching Hitler, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seems a bit odd that he was reading that. Yeah. So. But it, it does bring again with um, what I was saying earlier about when it's a comic that's in this issue, hmm. uh, in this series even, the, the kind of Photoshop it in there, but Jim Lee's just drawn a quite a horrible... Superman cover. Well, there isn't actually a Superman comic cover where he does that, is there? Captain America punches Hitler. Yeah, I mean, I get on the cover what of a comic. they're doing with it. It's just they kind of, like in Final Crisis, where they pick and choose when they censor and the swearing. Yeah. They're pick and choosing when they Photoshop in a proper comic. Oh, well, I suppose you could argue that this Earth had that issue of Superman and our Earth didn't, so they couldn't Photoshop it in because it doesn't exist. I guess. And Hitler's using it as toilet paper. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Quite a bit uncomfortable, actually. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, especially on that old rough paper. Yeah. That's probably going to leave a bit of a scare. I did get this, that this scene was kind of played for last. 
<laughs> the, the, the is, yes. is one of the problems with this issue. Yeah, it's kind of playing Hitler as a bit of a joke in an issue that is essentially about Nazism winning. Yeah. And yeah, it's the only win because they find Kal-El rather than him landing in America. I mean, he wouldn't even land anywhere near World War II anymore, so it's a completely mm. different Elseworld project. But yeah, playing Hitler as a bit of a joke is something that, that doesn't really sit still with you, sit well with mm. you while you're actually reading the comic. I, I did like the idea behind this one, though. It's something that I've always quite liked. I mean, if you're going to think of this in a very black-and-white perspective mm. from... Um, yeah, if you're going to look at it in a black-and-white perspective and you think of it as the Nazis are the bad guy... America and England, all them, Europe, were yeah. the good guys, then I quite like when bad guys win. Because it's very, you know, it's not stereotypical and it's always interesting to see how, what stories do with that. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting, and they did it in Captain America as well, where he woke up and the Nazis had won. Well, what I liked about it was like Mark Miller's Red Sun. Yeah. Superman is still Superman, or Overman, or yeah. Kal-El, however you want to prefer to it. He's just been raised in a completely different environment. But ultimately, his inherent goodness mm. wins out. And another thing I liked about this issue, they're not portrayed as the bad guys, like you just said. Yeah. From the point of view of this story, Germany's the good guys. Yeah. And we're the bad guys. And that was a very interesting perspective for him to take for this comic, which I quite like. He's also got another real character in here. Dr. Von Braun is a real guy. He was the guy who spirited away after the war to help the US win the space race. Right. I think he should have been tried for war crimes, but that's just me. Fair enough. Uh, why? One thing I didn't understand, why did Hitler think that Kalel came from the future... But then he says you came from the stars. The way I thought of it as, um, like you know, the fifties and the sixties and that kind of imagery is sometimes referred to as like the age of tomorrow, mm. Tomorrowland. Yeah, I, I just thought of it as like that. Right. Okay. I was a bit confused by that. Why? Why would he think he's come from the future? He would. He would just think he was a, an alien being, wouldn't he? I just got it as. As a child, he will be the man of tomorrow. Right. All right. Fair enough. And how does he fit into Hitler's philosophy then? If he's not of the German race. Or oh, blonde or has blue eyes. Or... Well, Hitler doesn't. Well, does Hitler... Um, does he look at Overman or the, the boy as a weapon? He mm. sees that it's invulnerable. He learns that he, he can bend steel. Yeah. So as a child, Hitler... Even though we only see him in one more panel, will does Hitler then become a father and turn the boy into a weapon Overman I don't know do you get the impression Hitler raised him um see, is that your implication I don't know because we only do see him in one other panel and he does say an unstoppable weapon yeah 17 years later Hitler's nowhere to be seen is he yeah so it's like was did he die before the war ended could have maybe Hitler had the same but Hitler wouldn't have had the same fate no because yeah. he had Overman Maybe he just so, died. Yeah, maybe maybe he just passed away. That's very true. Opening fire on the baby was a bit chilling. Yeah, I didn't think about that. They to find out that he was bulletproof. How did they find out he was bulletproof? Yeah. Have they just shot him at some point <laughs> and thought, "Oh, right, that's interesting." Friendly fire. <laughs> yeah, bad, yeah. Bad trigger control. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. That's a really nice splash page of um, Overman marching through Washington. Yeah. And that's the only good thing I'm going to say about the Is it? Is it the only... Actually, I didn't... Yeah, that's Jim Lee. 
I mean, no more is this more obvious than on the very next page after the two-page splash. Sorry, It's Jim Lee's stock shot of Superman stood, one foot on a rock, one hand rested upon his thigh, the other on his hip. And it's his stock shot of Batman as well, yeah. isn't it? So it's the arts, Jim Lee. And if you like Jim Lee, there's probably enough here to like. And if you just think Jim Lee's alright like I do, it doesn't dis- detract from what you're reading. I'm still of the opinion, when Jim Lee started... He was better than this. In Hush, when he was at his peak, that was his peak. And ever since then, he's been he's gradually been getting worse. This is the worst. I don't think he's got worse, I just don't think he's gotten any better. No, he's gotten quite... Well, if you compare this to the first Justice League arc and then compare that to Hush Hmm. he's definitely gotten worse and this is just the way I see it compared to when he was at his peak this art is just appalling it's very clear that he doesn't have the time the effort or the passion for this story that Morrison has and it just looks completely rushed and the fact that it's got four different inkers doesn't help as well Hmm. because the art's quite inconsistent in that way well, the, the sign of many inkers is normally the sign of a book that was hitting a bad yeah. deadline, or not touching its deadline. This is very definitely rushed, and the, one of the good things about this series is that Morrison knows his artists, he writes for his artists, but this is what hinders this issue. He's writing, he's writing big splashy pages, we get a double page spread of a group of superheroes we never see after that. Mm. It's just all splashy written for someone who's a splashy artist but here doesn't have the time or the effort or the patience to be a good splashy artist see I quite like this one (laughs) not because of the art and I think a lot of it is the art there's a lot of good ideas in it ultimately I don't think I read those as much in this as any of the other issues even the just Mm. I felt was meatier than this issue um, but it has it has some nice ideas. Swapping um, perspectives, changing the time zone. Yeah, having... it jumps years yeah. in between pages. I liked that this was a solid superhero comic, and I also liked that I wasn't spending this issue looking for Easter eggs. I wasn't looking for the appearance of the number eight. Um, yeah. I wasn't taken out of the story with always being clever. I actually ended up just being lost in what is actually a really quite good Elseworld story, proving that Morrison can write good, solid superhero stories like he used to when the mood takes him. Because mm. that's what this is. It's just a good, solid Elseworld story. It doesn't have an ending. Yeah. Which is a disappointment. Or it does, because I thought it didn't have an ending the first time I read it. All right. But so then, what made you change your mind? What made me change my mind is actually, this kind of reading it for the show did make me change my mind on this issue quite a little bit. Because what I don't like about it is primarily the art. Mm. I think it's just horrible. But what made me change my mind about it is Superman. It is seeded throughout it that Superman is the Trojan horse. Yes. Superman is the one who's betraying the Third Reich. Yes, that's true. And so the ending, he everything was staged. There was a reason why he invited Jürgen Olsen to mm-hmm. the performance. Yeah. Everything was all scripted, but he failed. Because what he wanted was an escape, but he had an escape by destroying everything in his life he wanted to escape from. And because he's Superman, he then regretted, instantly regretted his choices because of how large they were. Yeah, well, he's essentially nuked his own land. Yeah, so it's it doesn't have an ending in that sense, 
but it's ended in the way that there is nothing left for him now. Yeah. Well, see, one of the th- one of the ideas I got was Leatherman mentions to Underwater Man, <laughs> which is a brilliant name, that the terrorists have to have an inside man. So Leatherman's figuring it all out. Mm. And like you, the, all the clues point to Overman himself being the, the inside man. And it's, it is all there for you to yeah. work it out if you want to. But I thought it would have been interesting if it was Underwater Man. Someone you wouldn't bat an eyelid at. Yeah, because it's already been mentioned Atlantis fought against the Nazis in the war. Yeah. And his ancestors were killed by the Nazis. Mm. So Underwater Man <laughs> already has this, this inbred dislike of the system that he is sworn to fight for. Mm. And he's now only there because Hitler believed that the Atlanteans were the root of the Aryan race. Which makes sense. Yeah, so there was a part of me that was interested in this idea that it wasn't Overman per se, but maybe Underwater Man was also an inside man, and they, they were working at odds against each other, despite essentially both being on the same side. Yeah. And there's something about that, about... Um, I, I don't really like the idea that Superman is just a good guy wherever the ship lands. Because I think a lot of Superman being a good guy is Jonathan and Martha Kent. See, I, I, it, it comes, that comes down to nature versus nurture. Yeah. And ultimately, I think, yes, Jonathan and Martha Kent raised him to do the right thing with the powers that he has. Mm. But one of the things I liked about this, and one of the things I liked about Red Sun, to give Mark Miller credit, is that ultimately Superman himself, or Overman, or Kal-El, comes to the realisation that maybe the path he's on is not the right one. Yeah. And there is an intrinsic part of him, and again, nature versus nurture, that you know to be, that he will know the correct course of action to take. Mm. And the fact that he landed in Russia in Red Sun, and the fact that he landed in Nazi Germany in this, it ultimately takes him longer to get on the path that he should be on, but ultimately he will get on the right path. But I think that makes the stories pointless in that sense. If your Superman will always be the same because that's just who Superman is, then there's no reason to say, what if Superman landed in Germany? What if Superman landed in Russia? Because you know you will always be the same. Unless, like, Ultraman in, in um, Earth 1, Earth 2, whichever it is, hmm. he's a bad guy. That's Superman in a completely different world where he is the definition of bad guy. See, I don't agree. I actually quite like that even a Superman that was raised in Nazi Germany will ultimately realise that this fascist way of enforcing control, which again goes to what you talked about in Pax Americana, mm. is not the right way of going about it. I like that he will ultimately find the true path. Yeah, I just feel as though if that's always the case in every single what-if, then there's no real reason for there to be a what-if if if the answer's the same. Well, no, the interesting part of that comes from the scenario that he finds himself in, and then ultimately, how does he? In other iterations of this story, like they did one where Superman was there for the American War of Independence. Right. And he fought, not for the Americans. Right. So the ultimately, and it ends in pretty much the same way. Ultimately, he finds his own path. Yeah. Fights for freedom and all that. But in all... The other iterations of the story, it's normally Lois mm. that brings him onto that path. Here, there is no Lois. No, just a bitchy wife. Yeah, so I liked that in this particular story. I can't remember, was there a Lois in Red Sun? 
Uh, I, can't I think in Red Sun, didn't he have a mentor? I don't remember. It's been a while since I read Red Sun. I know it was Lois in True Brit. Yeah, and it's <laughs> Lois in the independent story that I just mentioned as well. Yeah. It's Action Comics. I can't remember what annual it was. So it's Lois who puts him on that path. I liked here that it was him mm. that realised this. There's no outward influences. It's yeah. him coming to the realisation that maybe I'm not the good guy. Yeah. Which I, li- I like. It's like with Breaking Bad at that bit. Mm. When did I become the bad guy? Yeah. And it's like you're watching it and you're going, you, you've you just realised this. Mm. And then ultimately he stays on that path. Yeah. Whereas Superman gets off the path of being the bad guy. I just feel like, does that not take away from Jonathan and Martha? Because they've become an integral part of Superman's life over the years and they've made him who he is. So having Superman decide to become the man he is now on his own no because there is the novel where it's just Jonathan mm. and there's the new 52 where they're both it's dead. Superman and is the, that the novel you made yeah and the different people who were the same Superman but they all have different perspectives and have different ways of thinking because of the variations on who's his parents right see no I don't I don't agree because and here's why <laughs> Without Jonathan and Martha Kent, he would have gotten to that place a lot sooner. That's the point. He was raised here, and therefore he fought for Nazism. Yeah. Whereas Jonathan, the one that landed and was raised by Jonathan and Martha, wouldn't have even thought about doing that. Mm. So the Jonathan Martha Kent influence came very early on. But I don't. I see again. It's nature versus nurture. If Superman wasn't an altruistic person maybe Jonathan and Martha raising him wouldn't have made that much of a difference. Yeah. He may still be a good guy, but he may pocket some of those jewels that he stops the heist guys from stealing every now and yeah. again. Whereas Jonathan and Martha made him salt of the earth. And without them, he's a bit more rough around the edges. But he's still who he is. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, again, you're into all that we keep saying nature versus nurture thing. But I, I, quite, I mean, you've also got the subtext in this story, Heavy Lies the Head That Was the Crown. Yeah. So you've got all of that part of it as well. And it's, as they point out in this story, Earth now knows peace. Yeah. They're living in an age of prosperity. Nobody's hungry. Nobody's thirsty. Well, except for Uncle Sam and his refugees. Well, yeah, except for Uncle Sam and the people of America, but nobody in Germany. But then that very definitely makes Superman the bad person in this then. Yeah. It's world peace and all that, but Superman has killed... An entire city. An entire just, world. Just because he's not happy. Well, I didn't get that it's, he's just not happy, that it's, this isn't the right course of action for him. But at the same time, he doesn't want to turn on his own people. But he's then, caught between the very definition of a rock and a hard place. So what he essentially does then is he doesn't destroy his... He doesn't kill everyone, he mm. just doesn't stop the people who will kill everyone. Yeah, uh, my reading of it was, there's no way in hell that he couldn't stop that rocket that fell and nuked Germany. Yeah. But he chooses to not do it. But then that's, two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. What The choices that he makes in this one leads to a lot of deaths. Yeah. Well, the choices that he made prior to that have led to a lot of deaths. Yeah. Because he actually says to Leatherface, or Leatherman, <laughs> do you ever think about what we've done? Mm. And Leatherman's like, no, we yeah. did what we had to do. The world knows peace now. Yeah. Under our iron fist in the Velvet Glove, mm. but it knows peace. It could also be um, related to soldiers. Like, uh, soldiers aren't happy with what they did, but what they did was for peace. Yeah. 
Well, that's essentially what Superman is. He considers himself a soldier, though, doesn't he? Mm. That's why a lot of them come back with um, post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing soldiers are used as weapons. Mm. Superman was used as a weapon, but the problem is people aren't weapons because they have morals like this. Mm. So being used as a weapon, Superman now feels nothing but guilt. Yeah. Which he does. He's not happy throughout this entire story. Yeah. He doesn't like his wife. He doesn't like the situation he's found himself in. He doesn't like the the world that he's ruling over. Yeah. I actually really quite liked this one. Uncle Sam is the only real superhero in this one. Yeah. Uh, Created by Will Eisner. We don't get enough of him. No, we don't. I'm not... This is my problem with the Freedom Fighters. We see him in a page and that's it. Yeah. We don't see the growing rebellion... Mm. We don't see the tide of people turning. We don't even see him arguing for his position. I mean, if we are to believe what is said throughout the rest of the story, that most of the world knows peace and prosperity under this rule, then you've got a much harder job convincing the populace to rebel Mm. other than it's the right thing to do. But the people who are in the freedom fighters are the ethnic minorities who were in the purge. Yes, exactly. So there's an interesting... That's that's what I found quite interesting about the whole whole story. And I do like how the issue that I like the least sparked the most interesting... Sparked the most interesting conversation, yeah. Uh, There's a panel of Overgirl dying, which is obviously a direct homage to Crisis on Infinite Earths. I like the the gentry around it as well. Yeah. You get the quite, quite creepy imagery of them. Yeah. Superman ended up with a redhead in this universe. Yeah. Which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, is the maths off? Uh, I don't know why. Uncle Sam says America falls on April 20th, 1956, which apparently is Hitler's birthday. Right, okay. This is 17 years after Hitler finds out about Kal-El, which places the opening in 1939. Now, one would have thought Morrison would have said 1938, you know, right. to drive that parallel home, but, you know, apparently not. The bulk of the book, according to the caption, takes place 60 years later, which places it in 2016. Right. Not 2015. Making Overman 77 years of age. And his immortality is a big part of the story, isn't it? Yeah, because he has his wife. Yeah, and it's, it's also implied that his age is also partially responsible for his changing attitude. As he's gotten older, he's got more world experience than anyone else. Yeah, there was the character in Invincible. Exactly right. So, but the conclusion, sorry, states that Overman is 98 years old, which would set the end of this story in 2037. Right. So do you think there was a mistake somewhere in the dialogue? Or one of the letterings a mistake? I was going to say, maybe it jumps around a bit, but it doesn't because the prisoner on the ship, unless it was kept there for decades... Yeah. It doesn't strike me as a mistake that Grant Morrison would make. Yeah. Given how intricate and anal he is about his plotting and all his stories making sense and adding up. Yeah. So I was intrigued as to if the setting of the back end of this story in 2037 was deliberate and I'd missed something somewhere, or if it's a mistake by the letter that they're going to fix for the trade paperback. Well, when he says America falls... Yeah. That that was... Is that not the date of when that is happening? Uh, if we go back, let's have a say. Because it may be that, that because I'm Because they do say that English is a dead language. Yeah. So America would have fallen then. So it is... That America, that was the day... 
20th of April 1956. So that's... So that's the day that America falls. So 17, that is... Why it took Superman 17 years... Yeah. ...to win World War II, I have no idea. Well, he had to grow up. Well, was, that's was... true. Yeah. But you could have unleashed Super Baby on the world. Yeah. And he probably still would have done damage. So that's 17 years later. So he's at least 18, 19. Yeah, so he's at least 18 or 19 years of age. So take 17 or 18 years off that. Well, no, because he's not two, though, when he's a baby. How old is he? I don't think he's even one. I could be wrong. I mean, well, either way, well, maybe it sets it then, maybe it does put it in 1938. Mm. Which, all right, still makes a little bit of nebulousness with that. But he's still given the age of being 98 years old at the end. I can't justify that. Yeah. At all. So, unless there was a lettering mistake... So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that was a mistake. Maybe it's a pointing out to another story that we've not twigged. I don't know. Uh, there's an interesting parallel as well between Overman feeling shamed by the things they may have done in the past versus what he hopes to accomplish in the present. And many a people who've been around a long time mm. come to the realisation that their past deeds may just come home to haunt them and perhaps that they did things in the past that they're not proud of. And that's where Superman is at this point. Yeah. Which I thought was quite interesting. Jürgen Olsen states in his narration that he helped destroy Overman. Which yeah. goes into what we were talking about, about Kal-El being a decent human being in any reality. Mm. So that fits in with what we were talking about there. The Ring Cycle, which is what the concert is, is an appropriate piece of music, as Wagner was Hitler's favourite composer. Right. And the Ring Cycle was one of his favourite pieces of music, you know, with its themes of doom and destruction and death and the end of days. So it kind of fits that Hitler was a fan of of Wagner. And again, the themes of having to enforce peace, carried over from what you talked about on Pax Americana, Uh, even more pronounced in this issue, is peace worth tyranny? Yeah. Is a question. That's a question they dealt with on, on Star Trek quite a lot. Do we two um, sides of the same coin? Yeah. Pax Americana is enforced peace that does not come to fruition. This is enforced peace that... That did. But for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Depend on what perspective you're looking at from. Yeah. The last page is very familiar. Where Superman's lying in the wreck with on his knees with his arms in front of him. It yeah, reminds me... Galactica. It is Battlestar Galactica, yes. <laughs> it also reminded me of Neil Adams' cover for the Heroes for Hunger stuff from the 80s. And it also... I'm sure there's a Batman panel that's like that. Probably. But given that Jim Lee seems to like Batman better than Superman... Yeah. It's, it, it probably probably fits. Uh, I know this isn't your favourite issue, which is why I was surprised by how much I really enjoyed this. I did kind of like it a bit more... The second time the second around. time around. But again, it's... The, uh, the story's interesting. I like the ideas. Yeah. The, it's just the ideas don't come to fruition and the art does nothing to help it. Right. See, because I was... The rest of the stories have felt like good alternative reality takes, but I've not really connected to any of them hmm. on an emotional level. I thought, oh, that was fun and that was a good laugh and what's the big deal about this one and, and so on and, and so forth. But this was different for a start. This alternate reality is genuinely relatable. It yeah. is basically, what if the Nazis won World War Two? Because that's a perennial favourite. So by putting the twist in it that it's Kal-El leading Germany to win World War II, it's similar to Red Sun a little bit in that he manages to take familiar ideas and make it work. Overman 
leads Hitler's armies to victory and only Ulkham Sam is left to lead the rebellion. But I think there's there's a level of character detail in this that, that maybe you didn't like, or you certainly liked it more on the second time round, mm. that I think enriches the story. Overman's never happy with what he's done. And that feeling just gnaws at him yeah. throughout the entirety of the story until we get to the conclusion where essentially he brings about the downfall of the civilization he's built for over 60 years. But then still isn't happy. No, and this, so even then he's not happy. And I, I don't disagree with you that having Jim Lee draw this was a misstep because it does feel like a 90s Marvel comic yeah. rather than being a bit bleaker. I'm trying to think who would have been a good one for it. I'd have said... Um if Doug Monk didn't do Ultra Comics, I would have been good this for this. Because yeah. this Ultraman is a returning character from uh, Superman Beyond. Yeah. Maybe Ivan Rice could have pulled it off. But he's already got but the But he's already ends. got the other bookends. I wouldn't want somebody like J.L. Lee on it. J.G. Jones. Yeah, maybe J.G. Jones. Because he did Final Crisis, which we saw the death of Overgirl when she crash landed. Yeah, so that could have worked. That could have worked better. I, I thought this was solid. I think there's enough meat on the bone to prevent it being a retelling of any number of other Elseworld stories, but it's straightforward enough for you to enjoy on its own. Of all the issues, this is the one I think non-Morrison fans yeah. would like the most. And I, I really did quite enjoy that one. Mm. Maybe because it's just a straightforward Elseworld tale. Yeah. And it's really well told. And the fact that we've got this amount of discussion out of it mm. implies there's much more to it than A, me thinking it was just a straightforward Elseworld tale, yeah. and you being initially disappointed with it. Mm. Maybe there's more to that one than we're giving it credit for. It could be. That is very definitely what um, Multiversity was supposed to be when it was first announced. Mm. It wasn't supposed to be an overarching, interconnected story. It was just a look at the multiple worlds, and that's all that, that one is. And that's why it works. It's sort of the same with the Shazam one. Yeah. So the ones that are the original concept were my favourites. Yeah. Alright, okay. Fair enough. Alright, should we have a look at the big one? Okie doke. Ultra Comics number one. Can it possibly live up to the hype? Well, the answer might be <laughs> uh, shocking. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Only you can save the world if you value your lives. You must not read this comic! Alright then. Multiversity issue two. No, we, we will, we'll cover it. Uh, okie doke. It's Animal Man looking at the reader again, isn't it? The cover. Yeah, I guess. Uh, this he's, he's got his 3D eyes as well. He has, yes, got his 3D eyes. Uh, Ultra Comics Lives has art by Doug Mank, inks by Christian Alamy, Mark Irwin, Keith Champagne and Jamie Mendoza. So is this another Many Hands production? Could be. And colours by Gabe Eltiab and David Barron. I don't see why this one had, had four different inkers if that is a last minute thing. Mm. Because... It's normally the sign that he hadn't met the deadline. But this was one of the first ones that was initially announced, and even when I saw him that one time a few years back, he said, he didn't say who the artist was, but he says that both him and the artist had created a way to make this haunted, implying that this was in production way, like, years ago. Alright, okay, fair enough. Ultra Comics is a superhero for a heroless world, made up of me and you and everyone reading this comic. Mm. Ultra is a comic turned into a person, a memetically engineered superhero with a career that spans from the golden age to the modern age. His first mission is in a destroyed New York. He addresses fan criticism before stumbling into a girl <laughs> fighting a horde of monsters, deformoids, once great superheroes. 
After beating them, the girl introduces herself to Ultra as Red Riding Hood, alongside the neighborhood guard who come out of hiding. The guard are children, trying to move a large object, a box of immense power, and Ultra is the only one strong enough to carry it, so the children take him with them back to their base. At the base, Ultra is introduced to the elders of the guard, one of which recognizes him, and all of them are called Ultra. Ultra Man tells Ultra Comics that the world was destroyed in a battle between Time Tyrant Tor and Epoch the Lord of Time, and that they've been warned of an upcoming catastrophe through comics. Another man shows Ultra Ultra Comics, and Ultra sees a pile of comics on the floor alongside skulls. That's when he realizes he's in the lure of super cannibals. Ultra is overpowered and locked into a machine and is greeted by Ultra of Almorak, who eats the Ultra Gem in Ultra's head. Ultra of Almorak turns to his followers and powers the box that they brought to him, allowing him to travel back to his world. However, Ultra distracts him. The Ultra Gem is powered by thought, and so Ultra thinks it, thinks it to become corrosive solvent, which then kills the Ultra of Almorak. The box, now opened, unleashes the gentry. They have seen us through Ultra and this comic and have now infected us. The beast ages Ultra, who then disappears. He then goes back to the first page of the comic where he regains his youth <laughs> before returning to the fight. He uses fan criticism to fight the beast, but eventually Ultra Comics is destroyed. But it's too late. The gentry have infected us all. Um, again, we're in moonlighting territory, or Shakespeare territory, if you want to go all the way far back. <laughs> Ultra addressing the reader in the uh, opening pages. I can't help but feel this is ground he's covered before, and I'm reading a retread or an inferior sequel, but that said, I did like that one of the themes of the issue was yeah. him sending out love for this to be a comic book, an actual paper, single-issue comic book. The superhero is a comic, he yeah. even says. Yeah, I mean, he pays lip service to digital, mm. but he pays, but he seems more interested in the idea that this should be a single-issue comic, maybe of a larger narrative, 32 pages, to be enjoyed as a delightful whole. And he also makes a point of the narrative within the story. Digital's not as easy to flip back and forward with yeah. as pages are. Mm. It doesn't matter how good you're flipping and you're sliding is. It's easier in the comments to just do that and go there and then go back, isn't it? Because the whole point of this is they even say to you, stop reading, mm. stop it. Because if you do turn over, bad things happen. Yeah. And it does play with those bad things that are happening because you yeah. keep reading them. So if you're reading this on a digital app, don't turn the page, it doesn't work as well because you're just flipping yeah. to the next panel. So I liked that. I liked that this was his ode to, to comics. How does it, how's it going to work in the collected edition? Don't know. I mean, it's still turning the page. Yeah. But it's not going to be as impressive. When you're reading it as a collected edition, mm. they're all referring to this single comic as being haunted. Yeah. But it's not quite as impressive when it's, excuse me, all in the same comic. Yeah, because the fact that they were released as individual comics, yeah. they even have individual titles. Yeah. Like that it's, it's a story element as well as just the comics releasing yeah so it's it's his ode to the single issue comic yeah and I get the distinct impression he'd have been quite happy that this wasn't collected mm. and just left as single issues but that's not how the medium works anymore is I it? do like the creepy guy as well who turns out to be the gentry yeah and I, I do quite like that because he's a bit dodgy from the start. Yes. But the more you get into it, he's the guy who's telling you to stop it. He's yeah. telling you that these bad things happening, you can stop anytime you want, which plays with reading it. 
And it also is about when you read it, do you read it or do you just flick through it? Yeah, well, I like his line of dialogue here. I'm sure I'm just a pen and ink representation. But I'm real enough for you to hear my voice right inside your head, right? Mm. And you're reading it, and obviously, by the very act of reading it, he's inside your head. Yeah. So Which is how know. the story works. The gentry are only in all the other issues mm. because they first got into our heads in this issue. Yeah. There's a good representation of the ages of comics in four panels. Yeah. The first one's kind of a sepia tone one where he's take that buster and he saves a woman from being mugged. And then you've got Silver Age silliness. And I say that in a good way. Yeah. Of people's heads turning into mushrooms and octopuses and, and stuff like that. And then, so what's the Y era? Is that the 80s? Yeah, there's Christ a girl dead behind him, yeah. Ultra girl. And then you're in the present where he's punching a hole through somebody's chest. Mm. And so that's quite, again, as he did with the, the guidebook, where he gave us the history of the DC Universe in four pages. Yeah. He gives us the history of comics in four panels, mm. which was quite impressive. And I also like his, his lovely line here, thought balloons make me look dated. How about I express myself using first-person narrative captions? Yeah. It was funny. I like, there's a decent skewering of cliches mm. in this comic, which I found was quite interesting. And I liked an awful lot of it. Some of it was great stuff. The expression of ideas being depicted as being subversive concepts, mm. which we've talked about already, is true. Young minds exposed to these ideas, albeit through pulp fiction like this, will go on to change the world, which is true. There's a reason that some books and movies and texts are banned in certain countries, and it's nothing to do with unsuitability. Our current government yeah. are trying to set up a body that watches all of our TV. Right. before we watch it and then vets it as to whether or not it's suitable for broadcast. Didn't Thatcher try to do that? I don't, I don't remember if she did, but I know the current ones are trying to, to put that in. Right. And it's, it, you know, they're, they're, trying to, they're saying they're looking for material that will cause offence. Right, okay. Which is what people always say when they want to censor something, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's great stuff in and of itself, but he's done it before. It's a little more straightforward here, a little less obfuscated with intricate structure and narrative sleight of hand, but it's all familiar stuff. Yeah. It's nothing we've I not like, seen him do. I like as well as the one bit where he just finds himself in New York. Yeah. Because we turn the page and he's just in New York, and that's... Comics don't move. Mm. So if in one panel he's in... Because they did this in the first issue of Hellblazer. If in one panel he's in Liverpool and the next panel he's in Africa, yeah. we assume he travelled in between the panels and he play with that in this. Yeah, that suddenly he's where he should be in, in story. Mm. And then I had all those criticisms of it. Yeah. And then I turned the page and I laughed, I genuinely laughed out loud, of course he's doing this deliberately. Mm. How could he not be? Yeah. Because he's Grant Morrison. And how better to cover that you're retreading the same themes by drawing attention to the fact that you're retreading the same things. Yeah. I said he was clever, clever, didn't I? <laughs> I like the bit here where he's reading the criticism of the fans, same old, same old pretentious symbolism, yet another comic about comics treaties retreading the same tired old themes. Yeah. And I genuinely went, you Because <laughs> it was funny. How about a simple adventure story for once? Well, he's given us that. He gives us that yeah. with the Shazam issue. And arguably the Mastermen, although we got quite a lot of conversation out of it's, that one. It's like he knows and embraces his criticism. Yeah, I'll, I'll always praise him for like, almost everything he does, but he does seem like someone who takes... He's acknowledging his, yeah. his critics whilst essentially 
writing a story that is everything those people criticise him about. Yeah. But at the same time, he's writing a story that his acolytes are going to overanalyse for the next ten years, mm. whilst telling those self-same people, stop overanalyzing this Yeah. That's basically what he's doing. Essentially, these, this entire series is one big bite the hand that feeds. Mm. But not necessarily to the company. Although even then, the fact that he, he did the history of the DC Universe in four pages... Yeah. I kind of felt like it was a big screw you to Dan Didio chucking everything out the window. Because yeah. it was him saying, look, you can make this all work. You don't have to toss out your your years of history. Mm. And it's, it's, you know, it's clever yeah. in the way that all the Grant Morrison stuff's clever. But, um, I mean, at the end he mocks the wrong thing. Because I like the giant egg. <laughs> And uh, he has the, the the criticism. The critics mock the egg, which I thought was quite fun. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was all right. I like how with Animal Man he interacted himself with the character, mm. and in at the end of the Invisibles he interacted the written form with the with imagery. Yeah. But in this, he's interacting the reader with the story, and he's interacting the critics with. It. I think Ultra as a character as an idea is great. He's everyone as this one character. Yeah. He's the way readers see the world. He's personifying an entire readership with one character. Mm. Yes, it, it, was, use, it was clever. To use the criticism on him as a tool, as a story device to fight the villain is quite pretty cool. Yeah. Even yeah. if it is his own made-up criticism. It is. I mean, he doesn't really want me to analyse it, so I'm not going to. Fair enough. <laughs> Last issue. Multiversity 2 cover is a replay of issue number one. Mm. It's good for what it is. It was redone as well. Was it? Yeah. Why? Uh, the original solicited cover looked completely different. Why? The Batman 17 wasn't on there. Right. Iron Man wasn't on there. <laughs> He's not really Iron Man. And the Flash wasn't on there. We have to say that for legal reasons. Yeah. yeah. They were different characters. Can't remember who, but they were. Alright, fair enough. And Aqua. Acumen. Is the Aqua Woman. Yeah. Or as I call the last week, the female version of Aquaman. <laughs> which would be Aquaman, wouldn't it? Numpty. Yeah. <laughs> Super Judge has pencils by Ivan Reese, inked by Joe Prado, Eber Ferreira, and Jamie Mendoza, and colours by Dan Brown, Jason Wright, and Blonde. Really? Blonde? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Hell Machine feeds on the House of Heroes, draining Harbinger's knowledge. As the Marvels attack Savannah's ship, the remaining Savannahs escape, but is shot down in Earth-18, the Western world. Every world undergoes a crisis, an event, and heroes from every world are brought to the House of Heroes. Savannah's ship and the multiversity collide. Inside the multiversity, Batman 17 spots Little Wonder Woman and Steel, who are believed to have brought Hell Machine to the station. The two prepare to fight, but the empty hand calls them home, and the bodies fall to the floor. With Harbinger down, Batman 17 believes the only way to bring her back is to bring back her knowledge, is to show her the guidebook. Back on Earth 8, the heroes fight Nick Zerotan, who works on solving his Rubik's Cube. <laughs> if he solves it in 18 moves, the walls of the multiverse will collapse and allow the gentry to enter. With every move, Nick gains more power and shoots eye beams that decapitate Captain Carrot. Unless he gets a power carrot in ten minutes, he's done for, but Stubbs tell Carrot that Nick's planned this. He knew the gentry would take him, so he sent out an SOS to call the heroes to use them as his weapons against the gentry. 
Thunderer and Aquawoman work together. Thunderer calls down a thunderstorm, and Aquawoman channels the lightning to strike Nyx, knocking him down, and then jumps and stabs his eye. Batman 17 shows Harbinger the guidebook, and her knowledge is restored. Savannah's ship crashes into the Hell Machine and knocks it off the multiversity and into the parasite in the bleed space. Stubbs gives the Flash all the comics of the multiverse and makes him read them before he runs off in a flash. Nyx solves the cube in 15 moves, but the Flash returns with every Flash from every world and all of them combine a super Flash punch. <laughs> Nyx has returned to normal, but the cube is now an open gateway. If the gentry can get into this world, the heroes can get into theirs. But the gentry come through, and Harbinger sends every recruit to Earth 8. After a long and hard fight, the heroes emerge victorious, but Superman sees the door to Earth 7. The mission at the very start was to return to Earth 7, so they step through the door. The destroyed world is home to a giant shadowed creature sitting on a throne, and an army, the true gentry, who labour away to complete the oblivion machine the final chapter of the hero story. After feeding on the multiverse 2, this multiverse will be next. Then the empty hand banishes the heroes from this world. Superman tells this to all the heroes in the multiverse, and that they know that the gentry came from Earth 33 through Ultra Comics. This time, Operation Justice Incarnate is coming for them. To repay Nyx for fighting the gentry and for his sacrifice, he's granted a wish by Harbinger. He wakes up in bed, with his landlady knocking on the door. But this time, Nyx has the rent money. So he's not Peter Parker then? He's not. Uh, I liked Etrigan the Super Demon. Yeah. He was pretty cool. Oh, it was alright in this one. Mm. Well, it was Ivan Reese though, isn't it? Yeah, so Ivan Reese is the George Perez of this generation. You think? Yeah. Yeah, he's good. He's uh, he's very. He was. What did he first know? Was he, was he? Did he do Green Lantern after Van Skeever? Yeah, the first time I acknowledged him, because he did Infinite Crisis. Right. But the first time I properly acknowledged him was Green Lantern. Yeah. Blackest was, Night. Yes. Yeah, I think it was Blackest Night where I was like, yeah, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What do, is he? So is he doing Justice League at the minute? No. Right. He was doing. But he's not doing it anymore. Not anymore. He's not doing the Dark Side War. No. Right. He's, okay. he's essentially just your Crisis Man. If you've got. He's a very reliable and good artist. For this kind of story. Yeah, he can do big-scale crises and meet the deadline. You can throw in as many references and characters into one panel as you want, and he'll meet the deadline and do George it. George Perez. Yeah. So, yeah, all right, fair enough. Um, what the hell is... Strike a lot, Etrigan! Who the bleeding hell is, dodgy-lacking geezers? Go, <laughs> oh, blimey! After he did such a good job in that Batman and Robin story... Yeah. ...with, um... Pearly, what's his oh, name? Yeah, Pearly yeah. Charlie and all of that stuff. That was just <laughs> appalling. Yeah. That was terrible. Uh, Snake Savannah complaining about somebody else's speech impediment was, just, <laughs> yeah. was hysterical. Yeah. Because <laughs> the vampire one, because he's got the teeth, he says, uh, vampires. Mm. We'll make the vampires invincible. And then they kill him. And Snake Savannah's like, did his speech impediment annoy you? I like how the art reflects, when he does all the vampire people, it reflects Kelly Jones. Yes, he, he, does, he is homaging Kelly Jones. I did it? love, I laughed out loud when not Zatanna tells the vampires to crave coffee instead of blood, and you have Wonder Woman going, I crave a latte, and Batman's Americano. <laughs> that was funny. It was. Yeah. I know, I see, that's, that's ultimately, that's where this one scored. There's, scored, sorry, there's loads of great gags. 
lots of great dialogue, like head jokes. Yeah. Says Captain Carrot after he's just had his, his head being cut off, which is surely Morrison commenting on how violent these things have become. Mm. And, and referring to Aqua Woman as a fishwife of Earth 11. Yeah. Which was absolutely brilliant, a fishwife being a gossipy woman back in the olden days. I like the um, bit where we see all the different worlds. And this is the only other time where we see Darkseid. We see Darkseid taking over Earth-17, mm. and then we go back to Commandyland. But then we have Earth-20, where we then follow on from the Society of Superheroes. Yeah. But then it's Earth-36, we've never seen before. And then Earth-26, which is the cartoon physics world where Captain Carrot lives. But that's the only time we see it. Yeah. yeah. And then Earth-48, where we have Crisis Event World. <laughs> Worlds will live, world will die. Warning, warning, take cover. Everything's a crisis, an endless event, a doomsday, a new apocalypse, a conclusion that never comes but continues to arrive. Which is one of the things with the ending. Yeah, so again, you can argue he's deliberately wrote an ending that doesn't end. Yeah. So he's deliberately been meta. Because at first I was a bit disappointed with it. He's set up an even bigger bad guy, but is that bad guy comics? What generally, what yeah. comics have become, he's he, the bad guy. The, what they're creating is the final chapter, the final comic. Mm. But he is comics himself. There will never be an end. Yeah, he has an end, never-ending bar created, but it'll never come. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's like you, I, I read this and, and thought that there doesn't seem to be a big wrap-up to all these plot threads. Mm. I mean, it was it was there was a lot to like in it. There's a lot of funny dialogue and off-the-wall situations. It's the most event-driven comic of the lot, whilst mocking yeah. event-driven comics, and as such, the ultimate self-reflective expression on what comics have become. Mm. But if you remove all the desire to overanalyse this material, again, Morrison invites that with his chin-stroking acolytes, this is a good, fun romp. Probably the best... Probably best enjoyed, sorry, is just as a back-crazy, weird excursion into Morrison's mind. Yeah. Than a big important comic, which is what people kind of wanted it to be. Mm. Whereas it, reading it as just standalone issues and a, with a batshit ending, yeah, I actually think it works better. I get the impression I read it as he wanted it to be read, mm. as just as a comic book series and not this huge event because Grant Morrison was closing out his time at DC. Yeah, and little Gotham Wonder Woman is still adorable mm. in this issue. Um, it takes like half a comic to get the credits and the title. Yeah. But ultimately, I didn't really have a lot to say. It was, it was, like you say, it's a commentary on what comics have become. It's big and splashy, and there's not really a lot to it. I thought the fight bit was great. Yeah. The way it was laid out as well, because he starts playing with panel structures. Yeah. Ivan uh, Rice, he's out, he's very... How yeah. much of that comes from Morrison, though? Is he very specific in his panel structures? Yeah. Or does he let the artist go wild no Morrison's very specific in fact there was one artist he worked with on The Invisibles who did not stick to the script and so for subsequent reprints and graphic novels and all that it's just been replaced and now it's exactly like it is in the script is it redrawn yeah who redrew it I can't remember right so if you never wanted to get that issue of The Invisibles right so you can have both versions yeah but it's he's he's a writer who has specific Images, yeah, but knows how to write for the artist. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was pretty good, and the ending, whilst being disappointed, could be. I 
well, I think I don't think I was disappointed with it because I've not thought that it was all that all the way through it. Yeah. And as we've got more into this one, into part two, more so than part one, there's this realization that wait a minute, I should just be reading this as a fun comic book, and I shouldn't be looking. Oh, he's got another number eight in, and oh, this ties into that, and oh, yeah, because essentially slags you off for doing that. Yeah. So you know, it was good. I enjoyed it, but. Mm. I didn't think some of it was as good as people have banged on about how good it is. I didn't think it. So, I didn't think it met the hype. I think one of the yeah one of the big problems with Morrison is his fan base. Yes, it's, it's yeah. It's the, everything he writes is gold, and this has been the greatest comic book series in the history of man yeah. ever. And the whole thing about Pax Americana. Yeah. And ultimately, I read Pax Americana and was like, really? Mm. This is the best comic ever published. He Not sure does, about that. His fan base are quite. They can. It's the same with a lot of things. If a fan base hypes up something too much, Watchmen, for example. Yeah, Frank the, Miller the, as the well. The Cult of Alan Moore. Yeah. Yeah. Anything, it's just not as good if it's not as good as the hype is. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it was. It was. I didn't think it was as good as Seven Soldiers because Seven Soldiers was a nice, pleasant surprise. I think it's actually more. He took the Seven Soldiers formula and refined it. Mm. So I think this might be better or more well constructed. Maybe not well constructed. Because Seven Soldiers is huge and yeah. intricately linked, but I think this is just more refined. I hope he's going to move on, though, now. Yeah, well, and this stop is... talking about meta-textual comic book stories. You say that. This was his... He said it's his last DC. It's a culmination... I, I don't of, think... I think he'll go back to DC. He might do. I think he loves him too much not to. It's, it's a culmination of everything since Animal Man. But, um, I can't remember what it's... What company's for, but he's done a title with Freezer Irving, a miniseries. Can't remember what it's called either. He's done something for Image, hasn't he? Yeah, because he's doing the one with Chris Burnham. Yeah. But the one he's done with Freezer Irving is about a writer, mm. a horror writer, mm. who is haunted by his books. Right. Okay. Well, I suppose if you find the theme, yeah. stick with it. The Ramones made a career out of it. <laughs> okay, we're done. Yeah. Did you enjoy that? I did. I enjoyed having two weeks off editing. Sure. Next time on our new episode of Hey Kids Comics, it's the Alien Costume Saga. Hey. Let's go more linear <laughs> uh, as we look at Amazing Spider Man 252 uh, through a certain other. We're going to do it in two parts. We're not doing our eight issues in one go. Okay. Uh, so that's what's next week. So, back to me doing all the work. <laughs> back to reading much more simplistic narratives. Yep. <laughs> We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
Idle Hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com And we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics.virginmedia.com We can also be friended on Facebook by using heykids, all one word as the first name, and comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.